Greetings listeners, Craig here with a brief message before you listen to the podcast that you've clicked on. This is being released during the 2023 WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. Without the labour of the writers and actors currently on strike, the thing you're about to listen to us talk about wouldn't exist. We stand with those on strike and support their desire to be recognised for the wonderful work they do. Now please enjoy our discussion. Hi there, this is Victor Cook, executive producer and supervising director of Stretch Armstrong and the Flex Fighters, which you can watch on Netflix. I was also the producer and supervising director of The Spectacular Spider-Man. I want to wish all the fans of that show a happy 10-year anniversary. You are watching Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents... Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that does not endorse animal testing, even to make them super smart. I'm your host Craig and we are here to discuss the latest MCU entry, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, James Gunn's possibly final ever Marvel movie, but certainly his final Guardians movie that wraps up the characters that he started. Joining me for this conversation, I have someone who is helping me guard the galaxy, it's Aaron. We are guarding the galaxy from the plot force. We'll get that in early. Good, yeah. You should put the drinking game in. Have you put that in any of the notes yet, by the way? I think if anybody played that drinking game on the last podcast you were on, the Picard one, they wouldn't survive. Yeah, but it needs to be in there as an option. You can play it if you want. We are not responsible for your medical bills (laughs) or your funeral bills if you choose to ignore all the warnings your body's giving you about how much alcohol you're consuming. Dark. Well, it's a darker film, so a dark start on brand here. But yeah, we've had a third Guardians of the Galaxy movie now, and we've had a previous two, so we're going to start with just a bit of a chat, a bit of a reminder about the previous two. So what were your thoughts on the previous Guardians movies as they were? I remember being opposite to you on these two because I found the first one funny and enjoyable and the second one grated with me. I didn't find it funny anymore. And I'm not quite sure why, but I still didn't. And the plot didn't really grab me. It seemed a bit too much exposition and just moving from here to here where not enough really impressed me. I think I did enjoy in Guardians 2 the references to, all of a sudden I can't remember, Mary Poppins. It's just like a throwaway gag. But there seem to be lots of little throwaway gags as you go in deeper in some of the Marvel films and... Yeah, I think it's just the style of humour maybe that didn't grab me. The characters as well seem to become caricatures quicker than other ones. I don't think that actually happened purely by Guardians 2. We'll talk about Guardians 3 here, maybe more. But it just felt like it had gone off the boil quite quickly. But sequels are hard. Everybody knows that. I don't know if I could call it quality difference. But certainly it changed for me, and I didn't like that change. I was wondering if it was going to go the route of Thor Thor 1 swings heavily in one direction, Thor 2 swings heavily in another, and then they find this magical balance in Thor 3 that everybody loved, and Thor 4 we won't mention. But Guardians didn't seem to go that way either. I think it just went in a direction. And I saw online somebody say that they thought it got more James Gunn as it went along. And I don't know enough about him to say if it did or not. But maybe as time moved on, I started to see more of the Suicide Squad in number two and then in number three. So I wasn't really enjoying that so much. 
so yeah number one loved it it was one of my not favorite of all films but it's in my top films i watched it again before this podcast just to check hang on did you actually like that or is it just do you remember liking it but it's false and no i did and i didn't get through a guardians 2 rewatch because i just started to find the exposition a bit much and it again just wasn't finding it funny it is interesting actually because i don't think there's a massive difference between the first and second Guardians films, but there is enough of one for me to prefer one over the other. Mm. I feel like the first one is an onslaught of humour. Every scene is punctuated by a joke, and I wasn't into the style of humour. Whereas in the second one, maybe it's a bit more off to the side, so the comedic side of it is not overpowering in the way that it is in the first one, and I think that's why I responded better to it. I also think that villain in the second one's better the story is overall better so the second one's definitely my favorite the first one i do struggle with for the reason that i just said the idea that it's constantly trying to make me laugh and i don't find it funny and that's definitely a personal thing because i'm certainly in the minority of marvel fans on this one because so many people hold the first guardians film as one of their favorite films and for me it's near the bottom just because i couldn't engage with its tone so i'm an outlier in that respect i guess but I guess that's just the way it is. Not everybody's going to gravitate to the same thing. It's interesting the way it plays out, because I don't know that many people that didn't like the second one versus the first one, or didn't like the first one versus the second one. Most people seem to just be pretty good with both, that I've been in contact with anyway. So we're both outliers, perhaps. Maybe. It is interesting, though. I think the sense of humour thing is so defining for this, though, because the arguments that you've just put forwards as to why you prefer two over one, I would have used exactly the same arguments as to why I preferred one over two. For me, the humour in one was natural, whereas in two, it was gag after gag after gag, whereas I felt the humour in one was more built into the circumstance, and it just felt more natural. But then, as we said on this podcast before the types of humor are very different i am well known on this podcast for not liking puns i don't want a gag a gag isn't interesting to me and in the same way i mean i I can like a good pun as much as the rest of them but i would be have to ask the question is there a good pun and you would say yes of course there is and blah blah blah. it's just to say how subjective it is and i do think because it's comedy that's what's controlling us here i think just because as i say the exact arguments that you just used i would have reversed and therefore it just seems so obvious to me that it is a perspective issue that's causing it maybe another podcast could be a comparison side by side and people would present well this is why i think that and that could be a thing if we did that here, we'd end up in for nine hours. So we might have to restrict ourselves a bit. But you know what I mean? How subjective it's making it seem. Yeah, we could possibly visit that one of these days, try and come up with a formula of humour. Well, Considering that AI is about to be writing these things in a couple of years, the formula for humour will be something that yeah. it will try to find. And AI will analyse what makes people laugh and try and replicate that in a way that will make people laugh in a future thing. Yeah, and... When it comes to shows that are just Saturday afternoon viewing, just a simple thing just to get you by, or this is watchable, maybe we'll be able to construct that average show. I don't know. That's a different podcast entirely as well. Okay, so this one then. What did you think of this one? This was a tricky one because I loved the Rocket storyline and really failed to connect with anything else. So it was different to me to Guardians 1 because 
in the Rocket storyline, very little is funny. I'm no longer watching Guardians, I found myself, for the humour. Now I'm watching Guardians for the drama. And I really enjoyed getting involved in Rocket's storyline. The rest of the film that occurs outside of Rocket's storyline is where the comedy is. I didn't connect with any of that at all. It went back to this gag mobile that I think of as Guardians 2. And the choice of actions, the progression for the rest of the crew are very much, we go here, we go here, we go here, we go here. Why are we doing it? Because the plot is dragging us in this direction. There was no particular reason for it. Some characters even randomly turn up in places you think, how could you possibly be here? But it's because the plot needs them to be there. And I just struggled with all of it so i watched a drama that was annoyingly interrupted by a bunch of other things that i didn't find funny at all and that's so weird to say because i know this film group as comedies but i'd already disconnected with two so i think the idea that i was going to suddenly get back on board with the comedy again in three was probably asking too much Unless it was going to do that, Thor 1, Thor 2, Thor 3, change of direction, which it obviously didn't. So it's a weird one. I enjoyed half the film, but my greatest memory of it is standing outside the theatre with five other people, all of them telling me how it was really great, they really enjoyed it. And one of them even said, this is in my top five films MCU has ever done. I was thinking, wow. That's incredible. But it probably comes back to that that we just talked about with Guardians 1 and 2. If you connect with the humor, you're in. If you can't connect with the humor, there's no way in at all. And for me, that was it. I was blocked from enjoying anything outside of Rocket Storyline. I'm afraid to say outside of Rocket Storyline, I was actually quite bored. I did get a couple of chuckles here and there. I can't deny it was awful but yeah unfortunately i was bored outside of rocket storyline that pivot you talked about in the thor films it does that i think but in a different direction because this one is far more serious than the other two are Mm. it's doing that tonal shift but in the opposite direction really it's moving away from comedy as opposed to towards it in the way that thor did doesn't do it completely though because the tones between the two films that are there rocket telling us his history and then everybody else doing what they need to do. They're so dramatically different. For me, it was like picking up a book where you've got several characters and you find yourself coming to the bit where it switches character and you think, oh, can I just skip this section and go back to the character I was enjoying? Because it's so dramatically different. So we go from this dark, horrendous stuff that's going on suddenly switching into a crazy, over-the-top, wacky humour, punctuated by the music that James Gunn obviously really loves to use. I didn't find myself struggling to move backwards and forwards between the tones, but only because I wasn't connecting with one at all. If I'd have liked both of them equally as much, I wonder if I'd have struggled with the tonal shift between the two separate parts of the film. Well, even Thor 3 doesn't pivot completely to comedy. It does try and do some kind of serious story about loss and other things. Mm. Maybe it doesn't necessarily entirely succeed with that because it is pivoting towards wacky, but you can't get away from that completely. Otherwise, the thing that you're watching feels meaningless. And I guess Mm. in this, you can't abandon the comedy because the audience that likes these films will be expecting it to some degree which is part of why Quantumania doesn't really work, because it does abandon what people were engaged by in the first couple of Ant-Man films, 
So you're coming in and you're seeing these characters put in a completely different, unfamiliar situation that doesn't work. So if they'd made everything self-serious and heavily dramatic, then I think that would have turned a lot of people off because you're not expecting that entirely in a Guardians film. Seeing as we're doing a comparison, help me out with something, because this is the part that I may or may not have referred to as, I don't understand why I didn't like this, because sorcery is wacky, but I was laughing. Guardians 3 has wacky parts to it, but I wasn't laughing. What's the difference between the two styles of wacky humour? I don't know. It's impossible to put a label on what you might find funny and what you wouldn't no. find funny. I didn't find this film especially funny as such, but also I don't feel like its attempts to make me laugh were distracting me from the stuff I was enjoying. So I was okay with the fact that a joke would be made and I wasn't into it because it wasn't the point of the scene or it wasn't the point of the film. I was actually focusing on the more dramatic stuff and getting a lot out of that. And then the comedy stuff, I could take it or leave it. I found some of it funny, but not a lot of it. So I was okay leaning into the more dramatic side of it. And I think that takes up the lion's share of the film. But then again, you'll get people that saw it and laughed at all the jokes and thought it was hilarious. So that will be another perspective thing. Well, I was certainly sitting next to a couple that weren't in our group that did find it hilarious to the extent they were pointing at the screen with the reactions of, can you believe he just said that? You know, that really invested, oh my God, I can't believe what I'm seeing. It's so glorious. So I could appreciate that the other part was supposed to be a comedy. That's a bit horrible how I put it. The other part is a comedy. It just didn't connect with me. So I find it interesting, therefore, that even though it was a comedy and you said you didn't find it hilarious, it's still connected with you. It's an odd film, this one. When I left this film, I was in this maze of thoughts, feelings that were summarizable by, I don't understand. I really haven't been able to work out this film at all. It's very interesting, I suppose, from a podcasting perspective. Then, Well, maybe over the next four hours, we will get to the bottom of that. Yeah. Let's hope not four hours. Yeah. For the listener's sake. Yeah. Our almost four-hour Picard epic was singular. My thoughts on this film, I really liked it. I liked both parts of it. I think it was a really nice conclusion for the Guardians characters. I think James Gunn demonstrates... A strong ability to juggle a very large cast. Most of the characters have an arc, even if it's a very small one. They have a place that they start and they have a place that they end up. And you see a bit of progression in terms of how they get there. We've talked about a lot of films can't even do that with one character. Whereas this film manages it with, I don't even know, I can't even count how many characters have a sort of end point. Some of them are kind of throwaway and comedic. We'll talk about that. But some of them are quite substantial. And I also appreciated the fact that this actually gave the characters an ending, because that's something else we'll talk about. The resistance to that in franchise media, the resistance to moving on or closing things off. Yeah, really liked it. The Rocket story I thought was great. I thought the action looked really good. And that's something that it deserves praise for, because a lot of these films don't look very good at the moment, but this one does. (laughs) The visuals are excellent. So if this is James Gunn's last effort in the MCU, then he went out on the best note he could, I think. And it gives me some hope for his approach to the DC universe or his stewardship of the DC universe, I suppose. I don't know how much he'll actually end up directly involved in beyond Superman. Yeah, this was good. I'm glad he got to finish this on his own terms, more or less. 
after we thought that that was maybe not going to happen when he got fired for bizarre reasons some years ago. Good film. So shall we dive into spoilers so that we can discuss some of the things in more detail? By all means. Shall we get Groot to help us out with that? Could do, yeah. Or you could just have a character yelling. There was quite a lot of yelling in this film, so just have a big scream, I think. Ah, we'll go with Groot. Give him something to do. Groot, take us into spoilers. Vin Diesel was actually here to record that line. (laughs) You can't prove otherwise. Although Vin Diesel can be quite petty, he'd probably try and sue me. I'll leave that one with you, Danny. You can fight that out. <laughs> so let's start talking about some characters. Rocket is the main focus of this, largely. But let's talk about, about Peter Quill, because he was her lead in the first two Guardians films. And it's quite interesting that they take the protagonist role away from Chris Pratt in this. And I don't know what the behind-the-scenes side of it was, but he seemed up for it. He wasn't making any thinly-veiled comments about being annoyed by his reduced role in this film or anything like that. So I found that interesting by itself that he steps out of the limelight because we have spent two films on his journey quote unquote and this film picks it up but I guess he has less of a distance to go than some other characters do because they put him in a very understandable position to begin with as in he's so consumed by loss that he's doing all the cliches he's drinking heavily he's not focused on what he's supposed to be doing he's aimless he's refusing to move on And we get a bit of the Peter Pan complex that he's been known for in the first two films. He's refusing to grow up. They mentioned the grandfather early on. The idea that he's been running from that interaction since he was a child because he has a very skewed childlike assumption about what that reunion would be like. So what did you think of Peter's arc in this film and the way that he was used? I'm stepping away from the lion light doesn't bother me as a bad thing, I think. Very pleasant if the actor's okay with it and is able to say, I've had two goes, it's somebody else's, and is happy to be part of the ensemble piece. And maybe Chris Pratt is just a really nice guy, and that's awesome. It's not a problem for me because it is an ensemble. And if you'd had several films, maybe you could have just shared the limelight and gone around all of them. So didn't mind him stepping back, perfectly reasonable. What they gave him, it was a comedy role. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing because he has had his time in the sun. So giving him a backseat comedy sidekick setup by itself isn't awful. But I struggled to connect with his plot because of Gamora. And I'm going to struggle to not bring her into the conversation here because his plot is defined by her. He doesn't really have the grandfather plot going on. It's something in his background. You're you're totally right. There's something that they brought up, but it's not going on here. It's just that they bring it up as a way of moving on later. The Gamora stuff leads into that. It does. It's connected, but it's not like he's always dealing with that throughout this. It's Gamora that he's dealing with. So there's your front gun that you're paying attention to. And he's dealing with a Gamora that I don't understand. I don't understand how she exists. She's not Gamora. She's a different character from another part of the multiverse. And if I'm allowed to go into the multiverse to say, oh, yeah, she's from a different universe entirely, I could have got it. That would make sense to me. But as I was told by the plot of the previous films, she's just from earlier in the timeline of this universe, which is a difficult thing to say in Marvel anyway, because they've never managed to actually perfectly distinguish between timeline, universe, and dimension. So I appreciate what I've just said is built on a foundation of straw anyway. But let's assume it makes sense in the MCU and move on. 
I think you get what I'm trying to say. She's a Gamora that I previously met and I should be able to identify with because I saw her early in the timeline, but she's not. She's actually a different character. She's from earlier even than we first met her in Guardians 1. But how far back? It doesn't say it specifically, but when you meet her in Endgame, it's at the point where she was fighting with Nebula for... Thanos' amusement. So it's before she kind of struck out on her own in Guardians. So we're at an earlier point than we've ever seen her, at least to begin with. Crucially, I'm asking how far back, because I think there needs to be, if I'm going for ultimate continuity, enough time back to change her character radically. I would say at least a year before the first Guardians, maybe. I'm not exactly sure. No. I can't remember exactly what film she's from, if that makes sense, in terms of when they travel back in time in Endgame to revisit earlier events to pick up Infinity Stones. So she's from an earlier film, so to speak, but it's a film she wasn't in. So it's not impossible during a year for somebody to have a completely life-altering experience. Can't deny that that is possible. But I don't get to see that on camera. I'm never given that information. And so I'm trying to pick up from what I know. And the Gamora that I know is somebody who is from Guardians 1, someone trying to persuade people to do the right thing to some degree. And that is such a different character to the one that I've seen. So I can't deny that I could intellectually see the two characters morphing. But if I am asked to do that, then I want to bring in everything else that I know about her, including the fact that we saw an episode of her when she was a child and she's fully aware of what Thanos did to her family. And I don't know that I necessarily find it easy to bring up, purely intellectually speaking, a timeline where she bounces backwards and forwards between those emotions, that they're such concrete characters. I could see somebody bouncing between emotions on a day, in a week, in months, because they haven't actually settled. But these two characters are very settled into distinctly different moulds. And I just struggled with it because I didn't understand it. And if I'm asked to do my homework, can you not imagine that this could be true? Well, yeah, I can imagine it. But I'm here to watch your film and your story. So it would be better, I think, be easier for me at least, if you could show me why is this Gamora different? One thing to bear in mind as well is we don't know how long it's been since Endgame. We don't know how long she's been with the Ravagers. So her experiences with them will have changed her to some degree. Funnily enough, we were talking about this before in terms of Star Trek, how they sometimes kill characters and replace them with exact duplicates and never acknowledge the fact that, from the other character's point of view, the person you knew died. Yes. And this film actually turns that into a bit of a plot point because Peter wants her to be the Gamora that he knew. He yes. wants to pick up where they left off as if nothing ever happened, and she doesn't. She's not that person that he wants her to be and never will be because she's went down a different path now. Again, though, I'm asked to intellectually do that. You even said that you don't know what happened. No, I don't, because, again, it's not been shown on camera. So I'm asked to pick up with Gamora. It's a conceit of the film. This Gamora needs to exist in order to get the plot that I want. You know where I'm going with this, and we'll save the people taking the shots from having to take one here. But that, to me, was all I could see. Why is this Gamora different? Because she needs to be. Because my plot doesn't work if she's not. Oh, okay, then. And you could call it conceit, and you could say that you need to be able to just accept this and move on, and you can't enjoy my film. And I would say, you're right. That's one of the reasons I can't enjoy your film, 
because it was a conceit too far for me to accept it. And then trying to, because we've said this is actually Peter's story, let's try and bring it back to him. Because Peter's entire film is based on this, his foundation for his arc didn't make sense to me all the way through. And I was waiting for them to just add in something, even if it's exposition, which this film is awesome at. Really, really good. I was waiting for some exposition whereby they explained, oh, I didn't have this moment with my adopted auntie. Oh, I was with the Ravagers and I decided I really enjoyed setting fire to things. I was just waiting for that exposition to explain to me why this conceit wasn't a conceit. It's there in the story. I'm just going to be given it to on a plate rather than getting to really consume it myself. But it doesn't do that. It is just a conceit. You must accept this and move on. So I'm afraid with Peter, I can't tell you that I was able to connect with his plotline because he didn't really get any more than that. He gets to be cool. And that's something I definitely want us to come back to, actually, because that's something the film throws in your face. But just being cool for me isn't, again, enough to really connect with and think, oh, I really want to see more of this. I was stuck saying to myself when Peter was on, I wonder when Rocket's coming back, which is exactly what you don't want in a film. Think of one character as more important than the other. Or more interesting, sorry, than another. I was fine with the Gamora thing. I was okay with filling in the blanks of she's went off in a different direction and hasn't had the same experiences they have, so she's not the same person that they knew and is really frustrated by the fact that Peter keeps telling her that she is. And he seems to refuse to accept the fact that this isn't the same person he's dealing with and he can't expect her to become that for him. And I really appreciated the fact that they didn't suddenly have her come around to his way of thinking at the end. There was a bit of a mutual respect point where she says, I bet we were fun, and then they leave it at that. And that's after the point where Peter accepts that he has to let her go as well. So I thought the resolution of that was really good. And I just kept thinking of this Gamora as a different character, actually, throughout the film, which helped. Yeah, she was still played by Zoe Saldana, fine, but there was nothing really resembling the previous version of her, which was probably exactly the point, but it was also, I found it was something they did really well. It would have been annoyed if she'd kept exhibiting traits that were like, our Gamora's in there somewhere, we just need to get her out, but they didn't. They seem to avoid a lot of tropes that way. I think I have to ask, and maybe that's the answer that you're going to come back with on the tropes, I have to ask though, why isn't that important to you? Because this is very interesting to me. Why isn't it important to get some continuity with the past because this is something that's bothered me throughout a lot of the Marvel films and one of the reasons I've come to the silly epiphany that I should just not get so hung up on there being a perfect storyline all the way through because you've said to me before that's not something Marvel ever promised and I've looked for it I've looked for this continuous storyline because that means something to me so I come back to because I'm curious why isn't it important to you that there is a continuous through line with Gamora here that's like another comic written by somebody else almost like an alt verse I mean that's exactly what it is I don't expect continuity between this Gamora and the last one because they're not the same person the original one died. All the development she had to that point died with her. So this one comes from an earlier point in the timeline where she never met the Guardians. And then she got plucked out of that point in the timeline and then proceeded on with the Ravagers for a couple of years, maybe. I don't know. We don't know when this is set relative to Endgame. They don't tell us. Or if they did, I missed it. It's been a while, at the very least. But I don't know exactly how long. So I wasn't expecting this Gamora to be like the last Gamora because... To me, they're just different people. So to me, that's a very 
intellectual argument. It's a very matter of fact, this Gomorrah isn't the same person. And on paper, I understand that the script says that. It asks me to believe that she is not the same person. But in my head, I'm thinking, but the seeds of who Gomorrah was are still there. And nobody from Guardians persuaded Gomorrah to be a moral person. So that was inside her. And if we're saying, oh, the love for Peter brought it out. No, I'm sorry. I don't think I saw him being this perfect moral figure in front of her that inspired her. Arguably, it's the other way around. She's the one that inspires him to be moral. So if I'm trying to figure out who this character is from back in her timeline, I would say that maybe it's not the person who is leading the charge for goodness and right, but the seeds of that person have to be there because that's the person who is leading the charge on that when we first saw them come out. So I'm expecting not to see a character in the same plot situation that she was in. Fine. That is obviously true. She's in a different plot situation, but I am expecting to see her in the same characterization. I am expecting to see her with that same moral fiber that is going to come out because that's who she is. And so I'm asked to understand somehow that because she was around pirates, that that didn't come out. But I don't think that's true. I don't think that's possible. So I come back to it. Do you not think that on paper we were told that this is a different character? But when you actually look into what we know of her, we're being asked to accept something that's not possible based on what we know of her. Well, you get elements of her morality in there. When Rocket's attacked when they're on counter-Earth, she jumps in to try and save him where she could have just left him because she kept saying that she didn't care before that. And then there is a resolution of sorts when she can understand grouped towards the end. Those seeds that you talk about are in there. It's just they're not maybe as prominent or they're not deployed in the same way that they were before, which again, I'm fine with because of the setup of this character. Because the point we met her in Endgame, she hadn't decided to separate herself from Thanos like she had prior to the events of Guardians 1 even. So you never see what that choice that she makes looks like and how she managed to escape when Nebula didn't. And they've almost swapped her and Nebula around really in terms of their starting points in this film because Nebula is the one that's found a place, found a family, etc. Whereas Gamora has to some extent, as in she starts to look at the Ravagers as her family towards the end. But prior to that point, she just seems a bit aimless and all she wants to make clear is that she's not who they want her to be. The Guardians, that is, not the Ravagers. So I was fine with all of it. I think they did that really well. I would have really hated it if it went down the route of she becomes part of the Guardians, but in a slightly different way. I can't deny that that would have been disappointing for the film because of the plot they set up, but I'm still having trouble. And we can move on because I don't think it has a resolution, but to indicate that it is something so interesting to me because some of the things that you bring up they switched her and Nebula. Again, to me, that's an intellectual thing. They just did it because that's what this plot needed. To me, the plot force said, oh, this will be interesting. What if we just switch these around? And then when she rescues Rocket, I didn't understand. This Gamora has been pointed out to be somebody who wants to abandon them, wants to go away. She betrays them. She's the one that summons the Sovereign to come and attack. But then when the Sovereign do attack... She decides that she wants to rescue Rocket. And I'm thinking, no, you asked for this. You set that up. She didn't think it was the Sovereign, though. She thought it was the Ravagers because they'd captured one of the Ravagers 
and she contacted that communicator. Hang on, I thought she's the one that summoned in the Sovereign. Accidentally. She thought she was asking the Ravagers to come pick her up. Yeah, right, okay. But why rescue Rocket? I don't understand what's the importance there. Why do that? I guess it's recognition of the fact that Rocket is really important to those people that she's currently with. But she doesn't care about them. She has no particular interest in them. She's a Ravager. Now, they're not really important to her. We're asked to believe that this Gamara is somebody who wants to get out. That doesn't mean she's going to execute them. doesn't mean she's going to mercilessly kill them. But if she could just leave and they die, what's the problem? I guess she doesn't want to resign Rocket to whatever the High Evolutionary has planned for him. But the Gamora that's on screen doesn't care. This is why I'm having trouble with this. What you said was, oh, we see the seeds of Gamora actually being good. But I argue, no, we don't. We just see it at that one moment, potentially, but it's with no explanation. There's nothing that builds up to it. We don't ever see her thinking in a moment of indecision. She doesn't seem to change her mind. She's not in doubt. She just does it again. I'm going to have to say it because the plot needs her to. She needs to save Rocket. We've not seen anything on screen. And there's quite a lot that we've argued out here that I think intellectually I can construct a reason why, but I don't want to do that. I don't think it's unreasonable to ask the film to do it. Now, again, if I just go back to the point where I say, oh, it's a conceit, you must accept that this Gamora is different, then I understand because I have failed to accept that conceit and I just need to move on. But I will only offer it then as this is the reason why I can't connect with Peter and Gamora because Gamora to me is different without on-screen justification and Peter's based on that. Again, without that on-screen justification, I can't get into it. I can't enjoy it. I appreciate that it is enjoyable, but I couldn't enjoy it for those reasons. Okay. Yeah, I didn't have an issue with the handling of Gamora here. It was far better than I expected it to be because, like I said, I did expect them to go down the route of, by the end of the film, she'll be back on the team and they'll kind of acknowledge, well, you got there in a slightly different way but we're basically the same as we were before let's forget about it and move on i'm glad they didn't do that i was surprised that she ended going in a different direction although the film ends with everybody going in a different direction but she was going in that regardless i don't think if everybody had decided we're going to keep this team together suddenly gamora would want to be on it but you could imagine that she'll maybe not dislike the notion of working with them again in the future it's so unemotional, though. That's the thing for me. I'm being asked to just accept the emotion of this and just feel for Peter because he's in a different situation. I think I could have connected more with this if they'd have given me that meaning on screen. So you're right. The fact that they chose to not give her the predictable ending is a good thing. But I would say that that doesn't bring with it meaning. There wasn't any power there. There wasn't any purpose. So without this plot, this emotional development to hang anything on, all I saw was two people decide that somebody else's crush isn't going to work out. Cool. That happens every day. Go to school and you'll find kids with crushes on each other that don't work out. Go into the office, you'll find grown-ups with crushes on each other that don't work out. It happens, but it wasn't powerful. It wasn't meaningful. There wasn't anything in there where I was so relieved that Peter was able to move on. I wasn't able to say anything about Gamora that was, again, emotional. Oh, I'm so happy for her. Oh, I'm so sad for her. It was just an event that occurred, and it was a good plot choice not to bring him back. But if that's the best I can get out of a film, that the writer decided to avoid a trope, it's too neutral. There's not enough power in there for me. I think it wanted to be an emotional film with Rocket, certainly, 
but I think I'm back on everything you've said to me is intellectually interesting, not emotionally moving. Not like rocket stuff. Some of the stuff that he goes through are horrifying, obviously. And by comparison, maybe it's too much to ask it to go to that level, but I just don't think it even tried to add any emotion into that relationship. It was just, it was factual. Well, the film's not about Peter and Gamora. They're an element of the events that surround them, but I did emotionally connect with what was going on there. I found it interesting, especially from Peter's point of view of his inability to let go because he's dealing with the face of someone that he loved and lost, and it would be impossible to separate that in your mind, I would imagine, this different person looking at you who is, as far as you're concerned, the same person, but they keep insisting that they're not. And even then, that's a thing that can be relatable because people change over time. So it could be that people just simply grow apart over a period of years and one person refuses to accept it, keeps trying to cling on to that connection they once had, even though it's changed. If you strip away the sci-fi-ness of it, then that's quite a, a simple story about growing up, really. And that's what Peter's plot has been ever since the first film, the idea that he needs to grow up. He's not an adult. He's in an adult's body, but he's still that lost little boy that was abducted when he was eight years old or however old he was. All I can say is I agree that is a description of what is happening, but without being able to make an emotional connection to the characters, it was just a description of something that can happen in humans. The difference is I can empathise for him, but at no point was I really emotionally moved. Some of these films, when you watch them, even with the sci-fi-ness added on, if they connect with you really well, they are really moving. Whereas at this point, I was able to empathize with him. I agree with you. His situation is not a good one. But was it presented well enough to be emotionally moving? I, I don't think so. No, I suppose that's the thing with emotion is you'll either emotionally connect to something or you won't. And if you can draw on maybe similar, well, maybe not similar experiences because it's quite an out there situation. But if you can draw on the notion of growing apart from someone and not understanding that that's happening, maybe it resonates more clearly. I don't know, but it certainly worked for me. Well, I think that's a bit brutal because you're saying that I'm not emotionally developed enough to understand that. I'm saying that I do. I can empathize with him. I did have that empathy. No, I'm just saying whatever factor meant that you couldn't emotionally connect to it, which meant that you focused on the details perhaps more than I did. Yeah, well, I do believe that what I've said earlier in that long argument was that because I'm expecting and wanting more of a through line, that is really hampering me from enjoying some of these things. It does feel like sometimes with these films, you're picking up a comic that has been written by a different artist. And we've been asked to believe that the director comes in and puts their spin on something is a good thing. And I could get more behind that if the directors came in and played with the style. I think I'm actually finding it really difficult when the director comes in and does the writing as well, or comments on or influences the writing. I think I'm actually reflecting on the entire MCU here, actually, that I would have enjoyed the MCU if it had been written with a clearer, stronger editing guide and just allowed the directors to really go for it stylistically a bit more. But the fact that they do seem like more sort of standalone comics that are vaguely connected, there's a vague through line there. But it does really bother me, actually, that consistency has been allowed to be violated is the wrong word, but consistency isn't important. 
for the MCU. The film has to stand alone. Obviously, it does. But it bothers me, actually, this loss of consistency, this idea that the director comes along and says, I want to investigate this. And say, well, there's a whole bunch of films before you, mate, that says that what you want to investigate isn't possible with these characters. Is there any way you could do it with characters that it would be consistent for? No, I'm doing it with these. Okay. And that's tough. I just need to accept that. But I think it's taken me a long time to get to that point. And I think it'll end up being the reason why I don't watch from this point on all of the Marvel films anymore. I think I'm actually going to be picking and choosing from here on out. Guardians is a special case within the MCU, I think, because James Gunn's been involved in it from the inception of them. And they don't massively connect to everything else that goes on. They do appear in Infinity War and Endgame. And James Gunn has alluded to some of the things they did in Infinity War and Endgame that were out with his control might not have been what he would have done. Mm. And maybe the Gamora death was one of them. Maybe he sees the script for Infinity War and sees that they kill off Gamora and they're like, how dare you? I was going to do something with this later on. This is my character. Leave her alone. And they give him her back, but not... And he has to pick up the thread and, and roll with it, which happens in comics all the time. Yeah. You've got a different writer, they'll step out, they'll completely destroy the world that the character inhabits, and then the next writer has to fix it. Or maybe the previous writer comes back and thinks, what the hell have you done? I put things in place for you to play with and you've ruined everything. I'm going to have to crowbar everything back together. I'm going to fix it. I don't know how James Gunn feels about the end of Endgame. And I'm not trying to look at him as this flawless visionary who's come back to repair the damage that was done to his characters, because they are his characters, but they're also not his characters, as in they're part of a franchise, and that's something that we'll talk about later. But the the success of the first Guardians film, with him fully committing to the project that he was on, is down to him in a lot of ways, and it was seen as a risk. It's hard to imagine now that the Guardians of the Galaxy was seen as a risk at the time. Because Marvel had never done anything like it. No one knew who these people were. If you thought Iron Man was obscure, then look at these guys. Because no one knows who they are. But the strength of the Marvel logo on it meant that people watched it. And the fact that he actually put some effort into creating something that people wanted to watch then spiralled them into popularity that goes beyond the MCU even. They released a video game, there's an animated series... All sorts of stuff. Well, if you're going to bring it back, bring it back then. Because for me, this has really brought back to the front of my mind the same problems I was having with the Star Wars franchise. It, to me, is rooted in this, these are my characters. Because I'm firmly of the belief that when you come onto an existing project, you own nothing. You do a job. And I do understand that, oh, but we're artists. And saying, yeah, but you're artists who took a job. If you want to do something with a film or a character, then do your own. And there are certain people who are lucky enough to be able to do that. And James Gunn is actually one of them. He's been given an entire universe, name multiverse, to have a play around with. Yeah, certainly you could be forgiven for thinking that the Guardians were his, as in he started them, he's done all three films, he lost control of them a bit in Infinity War, but apparently he was brought in to punch up the scenes that they were in because the actors didn't like the way the dialogue was written in the script. For the characters, it apparently didn't feel like the characters. So James Gunn had to come in and change it up to make it fit them more, which shows how clear an idea he has of how these people are supposed to operate and how the actors completely buy into it as well. Yeah, he's definitely the expert on these characters, but to me that implies zero ownership at all. Well, no, he doesn't own them, and that's part of what this film is about in a way mm. as well. But 
you don't know what the push and pull is behind the scenes, but it seems like he works well with the studio because in other films you see the studio interference play out throughout the film in terms of just the way that sharp left turns are taken and things. But you see less of that in the Guardians films, I think. I feel like he's more so than other directors trusted to just get on with it. Well, potentially so, because I say I saw on the internet somebody suggest that this is the most James Gunn that the Guardians have been, as in like with Thor. Waititi was able to go ultra Waititi. And I do wonder if this was Guardians being able to go completely gone. I think what they mean by that is maybe the emphasis on horror, body horror, especially throughout the film. That's where he cut his teeth on trauma films. It could be. I mean, the addition of Rocket would definitely add into that. I was thinking with the style of the comedy as well, the other half of the film as well, but maybe not. Yeah, but I guess I didn't know it's too radical a departure from certainly the previous film in terms of the comedy, but the horror elements were definitely beefed up from the previous one. Well, you notice the difference in the comedy between one and two. Yeah. It is noticeable that he's written the first film as a partnership with somebody else, but two and three he wrote by himself. So the comedy is definitely his alone in two and three. Well, I assume he's the director as well, so... That seems like a reasonable guess. There'll be uncredited push and pull in the background as well, though, in terms of when he has to negotiate with the studio to get certain things. In this one, I don't think I really noticed anything that felt like the hands of the studio were on it because they didn't do anything to set up the future MCU stuff. and There was nothing to connect it to any other MCU film. That is rare. But there doesn't need to be, especially in this. No. Anything they did would have felt forced because these people are off on the other side of the galaxy to where we see most of the other stuff. So why would there be a connection? Yeah, if they're not doing another Infinity Stone, go get them with all the pieces. If there's no MacGuffin to fetch or so on, then no, that doesn't have to be. People have been suggesting online that the High Evolutionary should just be revealed to be another Kang variant. It would solve their Jonathan Major's problem. <laughs> it would, but it's a bit dubious to say oh look this other black actor's good let's just make him kang now there's nothing good or well thought about it it's just <laughs> that we've got a jonathan majors problem what do we do the high evolutionary is just kang under a different name you could get away with that i suppose because kang has done that he's gone by different aliases before why not but why not just make the high evolutionary himself certainly i think that's what gun's intention is if you take out the person of color element to it as well they've already toyed with the idea of having different actors play the same character across multiverses anyway spider-man the three spider-men also happen to be white men that wasn't devastatingly awful so it could just be a timing thing yep we have got a bad guy problem, and we've just turned up with a bad guy that people thought was actually quite good. Can we use that? It's actually nothing to do with anything more than just raw, brutal timing and somebody actually creating a bad guy that people didn't find awful. Yeah. So back to Peter then. could see what he was doing there, but the execution was debatable. I did like Drax's conversation about the lily pad, using that analogy because it made sense, as in Peter has defined himself by his relationships to others, but has never actually become truly comfortable in his own skin. And in order to properly grow up and move on, he needs to do that. He needs to find that closure within himself. So that worked. That conversation summed it up quite nicely, actually. Again, I can't challenge the words that were given on screen, but if we're going to bring Jax into this, I'm horrified by Drax in the later films. Really didn't like him in 3. Wasn't massively disturbed by 
two, but really pushed over the edge with three. And wonder if some people were a bit insulted by Drex, actually. It'd be interesting to go on the internet and find that, but I'm not going to research that now. Could do it later. So what was it that horrified you about him in this film, then? So when you watch... And I'm going to always have to do this, bring it back to Guardians 1. When you watch Guardians 1, he is from, as Rocket says, a race of people who take things literally. That's just their language, that's who they are, that's their social setup. And he's a very passionate person, he's got a motivation in that his family was killed, and he throws himself into danger primarily because of this raw emotional state. Now, he doesn't bring any nuance in through his language either, because he's from a literal people, but nonetheless, you could still see him as nuanced as a character. He stumbled across drinking and had a reaction to it. He has different emotional responses to the different characters. He has that unresolved desire for vengeance as well. He never really got to stick it to Thanos for killing his family. Yeah. And you never really get the impression of him being forced into any particular corner because he needed to be there. He was not a caricature. He was a character. By the time we get to Guardians 3, he is a caricature. He's the comedy character. And they are explicit through Mantis, if not everybody else. Sorry, Drax, but you're stupid. And he does act a bit stupid. All of a sudden, instead of being literal, he just doesn't understand what people are doing at all. So it's not that he is misinterpreting sentences. It's that he just doesn't really understand anything that anybody else is saying. You're the muscle. You're at the back. You hit things when we tell you to. And you say something stupid on camera. Oh, and you get to play with the children and prove that you've got a purpose in life. You can actually put that silly comedy into amusing children. Oh, that makes you a father. And that by itself isn't so offensive. It's just a character descending into caricature, taking what was originally something reasonably well thought out that had some quirks to it, but just reducing it down to a basic thing and simplifying it. It's not great. I don't love it, but I'm not offended by it per se. But I do remember that it was you that was pointing out to me years ago, whenever it was Guardians 1 came out, that Drax was heralded as a champion character because he was somebody that the neurodiverse in the audience could associate with. I thought, oh, that's interesting. So it's actually almost representational. And when you've got a nuanced character in Guardians 1, it is representational. When you reduce him down to his simplification in Guardians 3, if he is supposed to be, and I don't say that he is at all, but if he is supposed to be still representative, you're now saying neurodiversity is equated to being stupid. Now, I know they don't explicitly say that, but it's what's being portrayed. It's what's being represented and I think it's a big danger if they did ever embrace that to drop it down. Now, when you bring those two together, then I'm horrified because I don't like to think of the second one happening, even if it's by accident. I just don't like it. But the first one always annoys me anyway, because I'm seeing the plot force puppeteering in the background, just doing it. What do we need you to be? Oh, could you just be the idiot who makes the jokes? It's the same we were talking about on Picard, oh, Worf is the comedy character. Little did I realise before you told me that it would always been that way in the films, which is shocking. But they did it to Drax, and I really liked the character in Guardians 1. But in Guardians 3, I just don't think there's anything to like, unless 
you're into your gag humor because it gives you loads of gags. But as we previously said, that style of humor isn't something that connects with me. So add those three elements together, I think, is the reason that I was a bit horrified. I don't think Drax has a terrible amount to do in this film, and he does sort of fade into the background. So yeah, you do assign things like he's going to be ignorant and lie on a couch when he's supposed to sit. Oh, it was just so insulting. But I did quite like his ending where it was letting go of that vengeance by bonding with children. The idea of getting back to that father role that he once had that probably seems so far back. In order to make that land better, you need to spend more time on it. It's just something that occurs later in the film. But as a resolution for his arc since the first film, it's probably the best one you could get for him. I'll come back to the same argument I used with... Peter, though, intellectually, you're right. Written on paper, that's a good argument. A lawyer could really do some good work with that. But I wanted to see it. I wanted to feel it, especially because this is going to be a goodbye. This is going to be an ending. This is that moment where you want to be sitting at the end of the film thinking that even if you're not bursting into tears, you're emotionally moved. This is a goodbye. This is an end. I'm really sorry about this. I'm happy for them. But equally, oh, I feel really sort of weighty in the chest that this has come to this. And so I, I agree. Intellectually, that was a good idea for his story to end there. But as you say, it wasn't on screen. It didn't show it to me. And I certainly didn't feel it. And I would understand if this is why Dave Batista wants out, because they're just not asking him to act anymore, whereas they did ask him to act in Guardians 1. He also wants out because he hates Disney for firing James Gunn, and there's only a year because he's contractually obligated to do so. I'm sure that whole process would have been made much easier, though, if he got to have a good acting experience. He also doesn't want to stay in the kind of shape that he needs to be in to be constantly shirtless in these films. He wears a jacket in this film, though. Surely. But yes, you could understand that Dave Bautista felt like they might be leaning on him as the muscle too much when maybe as an actor he feels like he has more to give. And I think he's demonstrated in various things that he has much more to give than just, I'm a big guy who can punch people. I've seen so many roles where there's definite signs of range in there. Mm-hmm. I think he's better than The Rock, although I think The Rock picks really crappy roles where he doesn't have to do that much. Yeah, maybe. He's turned himself into the character in the way that Arnie and Stallone, who's also in this film actually, used to. But you were kind of okay with it with them, whereas with The Rock it just seems a bit obnoxious because it's about his ego taking over. Whereas Batista seems to want to be an actor. He wants to play a character. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think Drax and Guardians 1 is more of a character than he is later on. In this one he is just that background element. I liked his ending and I would have liked to see more of that as well but again you need like eight Guardians films and one of them is just about Drax I suppose in order to get there. I think they could have done more if they hadn't have just made him part of Mantis's plot because he is just a supporting character for Mantis and if they'd have taken some of the silly gags out and given him just as you say a moment with the children because there's quite a lot where everybody gets a moment here and and there. They could have just changed the tone of it a bit. But in the lineup that they've got, it felt like, well, we've got the serious character and we've got the emotional characters, although I deny it was emotional. Nonetheless, I appreciate they were putting the emotional wrong. We really need the comedy character, so you're it. And yeah, that's a bit insulting. I understand why it works. I understand why all of this works on paper. But for me, that's the problem. It works on paper, not in execution. There's an interesting reaction that I saw to one of the comedy beats around Mantis and Drax. It's the one where she convinces the guard or whatever he is, customs guy, I don't know, whoever they need to get past, that 
he's in love with Drax and then he starts coming on to Drax and it's supposed to be very, very funny. The reaction that I saw was around the idea of they interpreted that gag as being, oh, that's hilarious because he's a man coming on to another man and that's hilarious because they're both men. And I think that's a very particular reading. I don't think it was intended to be offensive. Obviously, if someone was offended by it, then yeah, you should be because you can see how it would be offensive. But what did you think of that whole joke? I think that I can understand why people went to that because there was nothing else set up around it to indicate otherwise. Because they destroyed Jax's character, he was just a big, strong man on screen faced off with another male character in a supposed love connection that didn't really exist. And that's all it was, a throwaway gag. Now, if they'd have done something clever with Drax, if they'd have had him being a person raised in a literal society that didn't understand various things that were going on, then he could have had an appropriate reaction for someone who says to him, oh, I think I love you. Oh, I'm giving you all these vibes. And a literal person would have said, you're not. That's not true. This isn't happening. This is a mistake. It would have ruined the joke, but they had to take away Drax's character to give you any form of humor. So now, you're, as I say, you're just left with big, strong man in awkward circumstance with other men coming on to him. Now, I'm sure it was supposed to be more than that. I'm sure it was supposed to be less than that. I'm sure it was supposed to be different to that. But once you start destroying the characters and giving them nothing else to play with, what else was I supposed to see than somebody is awkward, that something emotional has happened that they're not in tune with? You can add in the layer of, oh, it's two men and that makes it worse. Well, that's a very old, bigoted response that we used to laugh at in the 80s. We've moved beyond that now and maybe somebody has gone back to that. But I can sort of understand it because if you're going to wipe the slate clean and not add anything nuanced on yourself, is it any wonder that some people who have only got the 80s as a reference put that part of their own personality onto it? I just don't think people should be surprised. If you want to be clever, be clever. It's one of those things that never occurred to me as being offensive or potentially offensive at the time I was watching it. I didn't find it especially funny, and it's not the first time I've seen that particular joke even. But yeah, I have seen it in the context of, you're supposed to find this funny because men aren't supposed to come on to other men. That's in other things. I can't think of any specific examples, but I know I've definitely seen that be a joke. In shows we've all watched, you see people use the concept of someone being gay as a joke well it's the insult it's the implication that you might be gay as being a bad thing i say that's right out of the 80s and humor and beyond schoolyard stuff isn't it really it shouldn't be in there it shouldn't be a response and i wouldn't try and defend it but i'm trying to indicate that i'm more bothered by the fact that they just ruined a character and for this particular joke, if the biggest talking point is something bigoted from the past, that indicates to you that you've not created a good joke anyway. Maybe it's not the biggest talking point. Maybe it's just a side point. Maybe it is just from the wrong part of analysis, but it's certainly not the biggest problem for me with that particular scene and that character. I think we should spend more time talking about poor old Drax's character being assassinated than, by the way, somebody on the internet is full of hate. Really? Has that happened to the internet before? Maybe it hasn't. Well, I don't think that the person raising that concern was using it as a vehicle to explain why they hated the film. They actually said that they enjoyed the film overall, but this gag didn't sit right with them. And I got the sense from reading through the thread that it's something that speaks to them specifically, probably out of some personal experience they've had. So you can't tell them, 
don't be offended. Everybody does bring their darkness with them. That is something. And you could find that in it because it reflects something back at you. If you're asking, did I see that? Well, no. I didn't see it. I saw that one character was in the emotionally difficult situation of being faced with somebody having a crush on them without being able to return that crush. That is always awkward. Gender is not a factor in that. It's just something that is really difficult whenever it happens to you. And I saw that. However, seeing that, I thought that was a poor and weak joke. Made me wonder about the mechanics of Mantis's powers. How long would that take to wear off, for example? I guess it's pretty quick because you see her user abilities on Cosmo and Cosmo still weakens very quickly afterwards. Well, the truth about that is that is a veil that they don't want you to look behind because we don't know anything about that. When it wears off, does he get his senses back? Does he suddenly think, why did I let that person through security? There's not any analysis on that. You're not wanted to look into the detail of people's powers. You just accept that it's a joke and move on, which I find too difficult. Yeah, fair enough. In terms of Mantis, I thought she was fine. I don't think they did an awful lot with her. She gets to the point where she needs to disappear and learn more about herself by being in solitude, similar to Peter, but you see where that comes from because she bounced from being around Eagle to being with the Guardians, so she's never had that. She's never had any time to come into her own. So the fact that she goes off to do that, it makes sense. She does pretty well here in this film, I think, actually, because she is the comedy character from before that everybody just gets to crap on in Guardians 2. Now she gets to hand that particular staff or baton over to... Drax and runs away. And that's brilliant. Well done. Take that stigma and get rid of it and run for it. And she actually got to have a personality to some degree. So I think she did really well. It's a shame it just had to come at the cost of beating down somebody else. Did you see the holiday special? I did, but the two of them in the state they were in was unwatchable for me. I couldn't find it funny. I don't like what they did to those characters. And taking two comedy characters and just ramming them together and giving them wackiness. Let's just call it not my cup of tea. Okay. The thing from the holiday special that they set up there that was, I guess, supposed to be important because they wouldn't really have time to set it up and explore it here was the whole Mantis's Quill sister thing, which they do mention, but they don't really do anything with it as such. They just mention it as a detail, I suppose. Well, this is the thing. If I'm trying to find meaning in something, then I would want the script to help me. And I don't believe that there's meaning there other than someone saying, oh, half-sister. Oh, really? Okay, let's move on. We've got that fact ticked off. There's a lot of that in this film for me. There's good on paper, nice idea, not particularly emotionally grounded, not developed in any good way what did you think of nebula then the way that you used her in this film she's now fully fledged as part of the guardians the last film was about her becoming part of them and then through infinity war and endgame she was involved in saving the universe and now she's being pushed into a leadership position and she achieves that by the end probably found nebula to be the only character beyond rocket so the only character in the external plot that I didn't think had been ruined in any way. Although, to be fair, that's not true. Mantis also got a good step up. But as I say, she was a part of ruining Drax's character, so she was still a bit stained for me on that. But Nebula's somebody who did seem to be in a position that matched where I expected her to be. She didn't have to do anything that the plot force needed her to. She found herself in a circumstance where a leader and an organiser was required 
and she found that she could do it. It's one of those ones that seemed to be more natural. There is a position here that needs fulfilling to solve the problem that is occurring in the film, and somebody steps up, and they're not comfortable with it. They have to learn in order to be able to do it. They have to grow, and she had that actual, natural, developing arc. I'm not sure. I think she had loads to do. And there was one point where what she was doing was ruined for me, but that's because I didn't like the humor. But we said we're going to come back to that. But otherwise, yeah, I actually quite enjoyed seeing her stuff. I liked her dynamic with Gamora because you have that point where Gamora doesn't realize that Nebula isn't the same person that she was when they were forced to fight for Thanos' amusement. Because you see a couple of points where she tries to exploit the weakness that she'd be aware of at the time. Mm. And it doesn't exist anymore because she's moved beyond it because she now has purpose and family and so on. You get the bit where Gamora tries to say, I'm family, to force Nebula to help her. And Nebula responds with, so is he, in reference to Rocket. It's the idea of, no, I have people now. I have other people it's not just you. I'm not basing my entire identity on my relationship to you anymore. That's a great point of development. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Happy with that. It shows that the writer does know his characters. I've never doubted at any point that this writer in James Gunn is an expert on these characters, and that's quite well used, yeah. Yeah, you have to question the whole, I'm going to lead the city thing at the end. Did people get a vote? Apparently not. It's not a democracy on nowhere. No, but don't lift the curtain too much on these things. <laughs> Just so you guys all know, I'm in charge. Fine, okay. First thing we're going to do is build a zoo. They could make a plot point of that. She suddenly thinks she is in charge and is used to being effectively a princess, given that Thanos was an emperor. Maybe she does have that sense of, I'm right. They could make that her next arc. Yeah, if she turns up again, it's about the challenges of trying to run a society when maybe some people in that society don't want her to run it. That's assuming she comes back, though. But from the point of view of James Gunn closing off these characters to the point where he's acknowledging that he's not going to have anything to do with them again, it's a good ending for her. And she's sort of becoming the anti-Thanos, isn't she? She's taking on a position of leadership and she's going to lead through compassion rather than what he was doing. Yeah. Rather than the brutality of Thanos' reign, the way that he would treat the people that were his subjects, I guess. They could get a film out of that, yeah. He's what they wanted to. Yeah. Well, nobody dies, so... You could see every single one of these characters again. Yes. You've spoken about them having a good ending, but one of the endings they were never going to do was killing somebody off, it seems. Although they seem to make a big joke of teasing you that it might happen at least twice, I can think of immediately, without putting any effort in. They try and make you think that it's a possibility. So I think that was supposed to be part of the humour, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't know. It's one of the ways that I prefer the second one a little bit more than this one is because the second one was a bit more ballsy when they killed off Yondu, and they made that really effective. Mm. Whereas this one, there's several points where they could kill off certain characters and then they get out of it somehow. And it all matches up thematically because they all get saved from the point of view of them not being alone. That's the underwriting idea of the Guardians as a sub-franchise, isn't it? The idea that as individuals they're limited, but together they're much better. The whole is better than the sum of its parts. Yeah, that's the whole point of a team, usually. Yeah, and especially with this, because you have these people that come from these disparate backgrounds that are all very isolated, and a lot of them reject the whole notion of connecting with other people. Yeah. And then, against all odds, they have connected with other people, which is basically the plot that you can apply to almost anything that has 
more than one character in it. They usually have a reason why the team doesn't work together, and then they find a reason why it does. And in this case, it's family. So, yeah. Yeah. And I thought the way they did the whole idea of them being a family was done really well. As in throughout, they would just naturally bicker, shout at each other, all that stuff. And then when it came down to it, they would support each other. It's a very natural family thing. It is. I do wish they'd have done a little less shouting, though, because it was all shouting at points where you didn't think there needed to be constant shouting. And there's a thing about bickering being different to actual stand-up arguments. You don't have stand-up arguments all the time in that kind of relationship because you wouldn't be able to come together it's normally a bit of give and take with it but this is really full on with the yelling so again it's good on paper but might have been able to connect with it a bit more if there was a bit more nuance to it i mean my sister and i at some points we really went for each other but not always there was a tension there that had trigger points rather than it just being constantly hating each other so a little bit overdone for my taste to make it completely realistic the mantis nebula oil and water type dynamic they had was pretty good and i do feel like that did have those pinch points where the explosion would happen and then they would sort of settle into an equilibrium for a little bit and then it would escalate again as they went on i can honestly say because i've only seen it once and it was a while back that i don't remember that so i'm gonna say fair enough well let's move on to rocket then we've been teasing Talking about Rocket for a while now. Bearing the lead here, yeah. Well, let's make your way through all the other stuff and then we'll get to the main thing. That was what I was roughly trying to do there. I thought the Rocket story was excellent, as you've said as well. The idea of the basis of Rocket's character being shaped by the trauma that he's been living with all this time and the idea he's never talked about it and being near death is forcing him to relive it and then he comes out of his injury with a sense of clarity that he couldn't get because he suddenly confronted that trauma and and managed to do something with it. I thought it was a great idea. I think structurally it doesn't always work because sometimes you'll see a flashback where Rocket's nowhere near it. Sometimes you'll see Rocket and then they'll jump into the flashback so it's very clear that, okay, we're entering his perspective now. But sometimes the flashback is just sandwiched somewhere between two scenes that doesn't need to be. But it's a minor criticism. It's just something I noticed. So Rocket's arc, what about it worked for you or his story? To be honest, it's just nice to get some meaning, some purpose, because I was struggling to get that real meaning from the other characters because I can't connect so well without that continuity. I was shown quickly two new characters in Peter and Gamora and asked to just get on with it. Whereas with Rocket, it really does delve into a believable past for this character that I've been with all this time. And it was also nice just to get a bit of drama because the gags come so thick. It's just, this is funny, this is funny, this is funny, this is funny. Well, I guess, because the two people next to me are just killing themselves, so I know it is funny. But I didn't want to come in and just see total gags. So really, a nicely done drama with a connected character that did actually go somewhere and have a purpose for the rest of the film, in summary. There's been some questions that have been asked from people that haven't seen the film yet, or were about to see the film, about how suitable it might be for younger viewers because of the way that they handle the animal testing and stuff. I do think some of the stuff they show you in the Rocket flashbacks is really brutal. It's really hard to watch. When you see Rocket pinned to that table and he has all the stuff stuck in him, it's very clearly a painful and horrific process to get him to evolve to that point. The fact that his first word is hurts. Yes. It's horrible. Well, what's the rating on the film? Because being somebody who's so massively old, I've not paid any attention to that. I think it's still a 12A. 
Is it? Wow. Emphasis on the A, I suppose. Well, yeah, that's it. Viewer discretion is advised. Yeah. But it's very telling that his first word is hurts. It just sums up everything, doesn't it? We've had suggestions of Rocket's backstory in the other films. In the second film, you had Peter pointing out about his whole inability to, or his rejection of other people, his deliberately acting standoffish in order to push people away and things like that. And you see the genesis of that here. It does flow naturally in the other direction because you see how he got there this time rather than them explaining why he's like that in the last one. It's believable that this would do that to someone. But this is what I mean by showing me on screen the meaning. At no point was I being asked, can you not imagine that this would be true? Well, I can, but I kind of want you, the film, to do it. Here with Rocket, they do do it. Exactly. He's been shown previously to have trouble dealing with others connecting with them, making a bond with them. Why is that? Because the first three bonds that he can really intellectually remember in full detail ended in the most horrific of ways. So previous fact that I have known for two films beforehand gives me the reason why in brutal on-screen detail, meaningful, powerful, emotional setup and payoff spread across three films. There's such a lot of power in that that I was always going to struggle to get from other characters where they just say it. They just do it with exposition in front of me and expect me to get involved. I know it's difficult because the others didn't have much screen time to do it, but it just emphasizes that it can be done here with these Guardians characters, as you say, by showing us the reason he is here. Yeah, that point where he suddenly becomes less gentle, becomes less emotionally available, where his friends are just brutally gunned down in front of him. This is a very powerful moment. So to me, this is a slightly unfair question because Rocket got so much more screen time. But if I come back to my original discussion that we started off with, technically, Peter, is it that you were able to emotionally connect with both storylines equally as well if you can adjust for the time on screen and you might not be able to because my argument is i just can't i really emotionally connected with rocket for the reasons we've just described and asking me to take that intellectual shortcut as i perceive it to be with the other characters is impossible for me but i suppose my question is was it possible for you then you were able to emotionally connect with both irrespective of this. And I suppose that case, that breeds to me the question then, how? This is what I'm really struggling with. I can't see how they can both be emotionally connecting without me having to add something in myself. For me, one of them was powerful on screen. And the other one was, if you fill in the gaps yourself, you will find this emotional. I guess with the Quill-Gamora plot, my brain was just able to fill in those blanks. And I was able to follow from when we last saw this Gamora to where she ends up or where she starts this film. I was okay with that. The problem with trying to rationalise an emotional connection is it's very difficult to do that because emotion isn't something you can necessarily easily define. Maybe not, but it bothers me slightly with the MCU because of this changing characters. I think it was most noticeable for me during Multiverse of Madness and Black Widow, whereby the idea of connecting these characters to who they used to be was a swear word to these films. They actively changed the characters to their personality. They didn't just change their history. As far as I'm concerned, they did change some of their history or just not refer to it. But they also changed their personality. 
you liked both of those films and I didn't, even if to some degree you liked, but I hated them for that because I felt like it was a betrayal. And it came to a head for me in Guardians because I see the same in Gamora. It's not as big a transgression. It's not a massive change like the other two. She doesn't act contrary to her previous personalities in the way that the other two do because we've been told it's a different Gamora. And it's like, well, okay, well, you have to accept that she is somewhat different. But it just feels like something Marvel is okay with. We're okay with altering our characters for the first time we're going to say there's a reason for it because she is a back-in-time Gamora. But we're okay with changing our characters to suit our film. For me, that is the plot force right there. I keep coming back to it because I'm trying to figure out, for you, that's obviously not an issue. What I'm struggling to get to, I think, what I really want to understand is why isn't it an issue when they change characters between films for you. And I need to emphasize, I'm not trying to say I accuse you of something. I'm trying to recognize that there's obviously something going on here that's just as good for you. This is good. Therefore, I either don't see it or I think you're wrong or I don't care. I think I'm struggling to see it. So what is it that I'm missing here? Because you keep saying I'm okay with this. I really benefit from hearing more about how or why that's okay. Guardians, one reference there, Aaron the Accuser, we can call you. Okay. In some ways, it's difficult to quantify. There's just some things that bother me less than other things. In Black Widow, I was really annoyed by the fact that they absolved her of her guilt that she carries around around all the horrible things she's done. As in, oh, you didn't kill this little girl in a hospital fire or whatever it was. She's fine. Okay, she's not in the best of circumstances right now, but she's alive and you're able to free her from the control that she's now under. So, well done. You didn't do that horrible thing. The counter reference I made was imagine if in Angel he found out he'd never eaten another human. Imagine the Scarlet Witch hadn't brutally, mentally tortured loads of children. The MC loves to do this. Yeah. So, the Black Widow thing did bother me. However, it didn't impact my overall enjoyment of the film because I liked other things that it did and I thought Natasha at that point was fairly consistent with her character in Civil War which is really a direct sequel to because it's set just after it really or most of it is so that didn't bother me as such the Doctor Strange thing I didn't see him as being as radically different to what had come before as you did so I saw what he was in that film as enough of a progression the same with Peter Quill here I can see how he gets to where he is at the beginning of this film from where he's been in the previous times we've seen him and the Gamora thing I'm just happy with the whole fact is okay she's completely different we don't see what's happened over the I don't even know how long couple of years a year two I don't know since she appeared in Endgame since she was dragged into this alternate reality that she now lives in. So I'm okay with picking her up at the point that we find her. She's not quite a blank slate because you see her fighting Nebula in Endgame. So she's still at that point in her life and she rejects Thanos in a different way in that film as well. She walks away from him and changes sides during the big battle in Endgame. So I guess the answer to your question is there are times where I can just see that progression or I feel like it's natural enough from where I've seen them before to where they are now. I guess I can see that with Gamora, even though I still don't think I want to have to do that homework myself. It was still a bit jarring for me. I still struggle with the other two characters, though. Well, remember, every time we watch one of these films, time has passed between them. We don't have a season of television between them all the time to watch them end up at that point. You can probably accept Wanda as she appears in Doctor Strange a bit more because you watched a season of television about how she got to that point. 
Not really, but I appreciate your point because I think that was crazy. <laughs> I'm not saying you specifically. I'm saying yeah. the royal view. The audience can see how she got from there to here. When we next see Sam as Captain America, we've had a TV show where we see him getting used to the idea of being Captain America, for example. So sometimes you see that, sometimes you don't. But if you think about the gaps that have been between these films, a lot of the time you'll pick up with these characters in places that they just weren't the last time you saw them. That's true, but I think the onus is on the writer to fill in the gap somehow. And even if they can only use exposition, which I'm never going to like, it's still something that really helps. It's kind of strange in Multiverse of Madness when it's done with exposition. I suppose it's not perfect when Scarlet Witch says, you've come here to challenge me over child abuse and kidnapping and mind torture, haven't you? And Doctor Strange says, no, you're fine. I understand. You had to do it. You had to do it. It's all right. So even exposition at some point can leave you a bit stunned. Yeah. But at least it's something. I think maybe with Guardians, it's not as brutal a difference. But it just seemed weird that they didn't bother to give me even that. I wanted something for Gamora. Especially when Rocket just gets so much of it, and it's so much about giving me that meaning, it maybe puts the two at odds, because I'm seeing everything that I want with Rocket, but then the other characters are treated with absolutely nothing, even less than the Scarlet Witch got. It might be that that's just what's jarring with me. Well, if you look at Guardians 2, without the knowledge of this film, they make a point about questioning why is Rocket like this? Why does he behave in this way? Why is he pushing people away that just want to help him or be his friend or be pleasant to him? Why is he just so unpleasant? And the film doesn't tell you why. It shows that as a starting point and then you get to the point where he's a bit more pleasant to people towards the end. So you were able to, or you were willing to accept the fact that at some point in his past he became unpleasant without necessarily knowing the details of it. So to me, that's kind of the same thing. I think it is, actually, because he is always unpleasant right from moment one when we see him. So there's an introduction to a character that says, I am this way. I have no concept of what Rocket was like before then, so I'm not being asked to accept any form of change. I mean, unless you want to give me mathematical change, because he is mathematically changing from zero into existence So I get that. But really, I'm not being asked to accept or do any work in my head other than form my first impression. So I think forming my first impression is very different to saying, this is who you think this character is. Sharp change, they're actually not. I think they're very different things. Well, with Peter Quill in this film, you pick up at a point where he's deep in despair. And for me, I can see how he gets there from what happened in Endgame to now, as in He's dealt with the loss of Gamora, or hasn't dealt with it. He disappeared for five years and came back and was straight into a fight. Mucked about with Thor for a bit. I think we can largely ignore what the Guardians were doing in Thor. Not that they did anything. I think James Gunn says he was grateful that Taika Waititi was the one to shove Thor off rather than him having to do that in his film. Spend time just getting rid of Thor in the same way that Thor got rid of the Guardians in his film. There was that kind of, we need to separate these in order to do the things that we want to do. Oh, that sentence rubs me up the wrong way, but yeah, fair enough. It was that Thor going with the Guardians was an idea that was created by another production team that neither of the people taking these characters forward wanted to work with. I just hate that. I really hate that entirely. Adam Warlock is another example of this. Somebody has set something up in a joint venture 
And you come onto the project saying, well, I'm not dealing with that. I'm just going to assume that everything the previous people did was rubbish. And I'm going to tell you what my plot is because mine's better. I just don't agree with that at all professionally or as a member of the audience. In both cases, I think it's insulting. Well, I don't think either film gains or loses anything by having those elements connected. Disagree. Adam Warlock shows that it does, I think. Well, they could have done a Thor Guardians team-up movie in between times and then had them go their separate ways at the end. Or they could have even just resolved it with a line of dialogue. Oh yeah, Thor left. This film doesn't even do that because he's been gone for a while at this point, I guess. But equally, they could have done a film where Thor is part of the Guardians for one film. They could have, yeah. But then you have that problem of Thor stealing the limelight from the Guardians. You have that possibility, or you introduce him into the plot, and as long as the actor is willing and doesn't kick up a fuss, then they can be downgraded to being part of the team. I use downgraded there wrongly, actually, because I'm trying to argue the opposite. They can be moved into a team role instead of being at the front. Now, that requires you to write that in the plot. That requires the actor to accept it. And we know Chris Pratt has accepted it in this film. So we know it's humanly possible, but it could have been done. But in my mind, it's more likely to be what you've just said. The director was handed back their characters, and it didn't fit with what they had because Quite a lot of the time they write, oh, I know what I wanted to do with this three film arc that I was getting. No, you're not getting a three film arc. You're getting three films as part of the MCU. That is a different thing. And if they're that precious that they think, no, I'm sticking to what I originally did, I think it's professionally bad form. It's not awful, perhaps. It's not a travesty. They've not murdered anybody in front of me. But professionally, I think if you take on a job and someone says, this is your starting point, then maybe you have to put that script that you previously thought into a cupboard. And that could be sold as a, this is what could have been if I'd have been doing Guardians 2 by myself and something for the fans and Easter eggs to pick up on later. Oh, that's interesting. But no, it's I'm going ahead with what I wanted to do, no matter what was done. It shows that they don't want to work together. It shows that they think the previous production company, oh, how dare they do this to us? No, I'm sorry, you're all in it together. And somebody posed the question, what would it be like if Thor met with the Guardians? Explore, please. That's your job now. Oh, you don't want to do that job because you think you're better than that. I think that's wrong to a certain degree. It's bad form professionally speaking. And from a plot point, I do notice it as an audience. Now, we've already agreed that I notice this more because I'm much more invested in the through line than everybody else. And I have had to learn that Kevin Feige does not believe in that through line because he is happy for his directors to say, drop the through line, do your thing. So I, I need to get over that. But you can understand that from an audience perspective, I'm thinking, no, I, I like the through line that was posed there. I would like to see Thor and Drax have a conversation. That would have been interesting to me. I would like to see Rocket take the mickey out of Thor a bit more. I would find that funny. There's things there that could have been, but the other side of it, where they just professionally say, I'm better than that. I'm against that. I think that's bad form. Well, I don't think that's really what happened here. James Gunn did say it, and I think he was kind of joking at the time. Was like, yeah, I'm glad that Thor was separated from him in his film rather than in mine. But I think it's just one of those things. I don't know how sustainable it would have been. You almost have to have a Guardians and Thor film in between each of these films to have the Guardians and Thor film prior to the Thor 4 and this. Why do you have to? I'm not following the argument that you have to. Well, if you're setting this up as a conclusion for the Guardians and it's supposed to be the swan song of this team of characters, 
then putting Thor within that mix doesn't really fit with that narrative. But where was that written? That it definitely had to be the swan song of these characters. Where does that come from? I don't understand how that's a fixture in the MCU. It's just the idea that they tend to trilogize things. The idea that you make three and then you're done. It's the magic threes isn't it when it comes to production of these things how many trilogies do we have well in that case then they didn't have to do a swan song they could do that was an option but i would argue that they didn't have to do that they could have done something else they could have although i think that kind of gets in a way with what this film's about in some ways because it is about endings it's about the fact that some things should end and shouldn't drag on forever but that's the way that film was written they chose to make it about that they could have picked a different theme picking a different theme wouldn't have made that film wrong from the start they decided that or james gunn decided no this is what my film is about but he could have chosen to make it about something else yeah and his film was written before a lot of these decisions were made as well at the point he was fired marvel were still going to use a script that was kicking about at the time so i'm guessing that whoever would have had the unenviable task of taking on Guardians 3 after James Gunn got fired when the cast are pissed off at Disney for firing him, wouldn't have had to deal with Thor either. I can understand that the cast might have resented a new director coming in, but that's part of that director's unfortunate job then. And if Kevin Feige says, I'm not capable of dealing with it, to a certain degree, I'm coming down to this film was set up as it was just because there's bad management out there that can't handle these problems. And I don't know that I think that's enough to justify the definition of a film for me. I can understand that every time you've said to me, this is the best we could have gotten. I do understand when you say that to me, that there are outside factors determining what things are. Certainly the end of The Mandalorian season three fits that. Maybe this is the best we could have gotten for certainly the villain of that piece. But that in no way makes me think, oh, okay, I completely understand that. I will just enjoy this in the same way I would have enjoyed it before. I mean, I can enjoy this film for what it is, potentially, but it's still a different setup that's been controlled by external factors. And I kind of don't want to be in there with my popcorn thinking about, oh, this is okay because Kevin Feige was forced into this. Yeah, that thing they did with Drax is fine because... James Gunn had an argument with the head of Disney. It's nothing to do with the plot. That's what I want to be able to focus on. I'm not quite sure what subject we're on here. So Thor being in this film. So you would have preferred Thor being in the mix. Would I have preferred it? No, I think you've swung too far the other way. I'm just saying that it was possible. And I don't like the idea that people say that something has to be a certain way. I think they could have written a different film. We've come from Rocket, though. I have no idea how we got here from Rocket, but that's where we came from. No, they definitely could have. They could have written as Guardians of the Galaxy, as the joke is, with Thor in the mix. But I think from an ego point of view, I'm not saying Chris Hemsworth has a massive ego, but Thor does. So it would inevitably come about him in a Guardians film, which I don't think would have worked. That's why I'm saying you need to make your Thor and Guardians film rather than a Guardians film. I don't know that I think that's definitely true because he's been through his own character growth. He's witnessed the death of family members. He's witnessed the destruction of his homeworld. He's given the kingship to somebody completely outside of his own family. He's recognised the value of people inside rather than the external look of it all. He's given up his warrior ways and he's obviously been 
accepted by Milner as being worthy again. So certainly as originally posed, Thor would not be able to do that. But the Thor that's gone through all of that journey, I think, could have done, or they could have made fun of him throughout this comedy that the film would have been as he struggles to really come down to it when he has to share the breakfast cereal. Maybe he's not really understood what it means to share at the lowest possible level. I have to use the same toilet as you people. Have you seen what Drax and Groot do? Maybe that level of brutal reality. But then there's conflict there. So I'm not sure that's definitely true as he stated. That's probably not the Thor you would have got. though. That's the Thor that you want, but you hated the Thor in Thor 4. And the way he interacts with the Guardians in that film is very much him acting as if he's in charge of them. Yes, not everything about the MCU is the way I like it, but all I'm arguing is the possibility, that's all. We've seen what a good Thor-Guardians dynamic looks like. We got it in Infinity War when they picked him up, but what you get in Love and Thunder isn't that. You get Thor as a jackass who acts like they're his team when they're not. But this is the destruction of characters for the purposes of the director thinking they know better. This is the idea that we've talked about constantly in Marvel, where it seems acceptable nay encouraged to not read the previous scripts, to ignore the previous films. You do you. Don't worry about trying to fit in with the MCU. We'll bend the MCU around you because you're that good. And I think when they do let people really go for it and be themselves, certain things are definitely compromised. Now. It might be that we argue through this podcast that things are compromised to things that I am very precious about that others simply aren't. And I have to say, fair enough. But I only come down to, all I was trying to say is, it's just not fixed that it had to be this way. There were other options. The directors chose to do what they chose to do, and they didn't have to. That's all I was trying to say. Yeah. And for better or for worse, I feel like this is the story that James Gunn wanted to tell, which I think is great that he got to, because in franchise media, there's not an awful lot of that. Well, I will have to say that is an offence that we're definitely going to sit on the opposite side of, because I don't think that's a good thing at all. I think if people want to do the films they want to do, then they should come outside of franchise media, that they have a responsibility to the franchise. But I don't necessarily think that anything that was in here was destroying the MCU in any way. It's deliberately off to the side as it is. It's just the way the Guardian setup works. I don't think James Gunn's left the MCU in a worse place. And we've seen it in other projects where they'll make a statement that just basically shies away from years worth of setup and things. For example, the Sokovia Accords have been repealed, being mentioned as a throwaway line in She-Hulk. Okay, that big deal that split the Avengers apart. Okay, that's nothing now. I would argue that does damage to the storytelling universe. I agree, actually. I don't think that Guardians destroyed the universe or did anything damaging. I don't even think that what they did with Gamora is anywhere near as much of a travesty as what they did in Black Widow and Multiverse of Madness. I think it's a very minor thing by comparison. I think the only reason it's come up is because, for me, it was another example of something I've seen a lot of. But if you ask me to rate the travesties, then the other two films hit the travesty scale, whereas with Gamora, it's something that just made me notice. I wasn't a fan of it. Wouldn't have done it that way myself. But am I offended by it? No. Intellectually, it makes sense. It's just that I'm not enjoying it as much as I could. That's all. 
So you're right. Yeah, Guardians doesn't cross any boundaries in that way. It's arguably considerably better than than a lot of things that I've seen recently. And I am forced to acknowledge that whether I liked half of the film or not, I would still say it's... For me, it's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I didn't enjoy watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I never said it was bad. I just said I didn't enjoy it. I wouldn't even say S.H.I.E.L.D. I never enjoyed S.H.I.E.L.D. I wouldn't say S.H.I.E.L.D. was bad. Legends of Tomorrow. Didn't enjoy it. Wouldn't say it was bad, though. It's in that zone for me. Although you need to go back to Legends at a later point. You've said that, yeah. I'll have to have another look at it. But either way, Buffy is still the same. It's in that zone for me. Yeah, and I've always maintained that not everything that something does, even if you like that thing, has to be for you. I've talked about that with Star Wars many times. I'd have watched The Mandalorian because it's not for me. There will be other Star Wars things that hopefully are for me, but it just ain't it. And I feel like I'm not entitled enough to assume that everything should be for me. So I'm happy to just walk away from the thing that isn't. keep coming up with these things that feel like they're veiled insults, but I know they're not. But I'm going to bring that one up again. I don't know that I feel entitled. I'm not saying that you are. But I do believe that Marvel might have encouraged me at the start to think of a through line being possible. They opened the door to this consistent through line. Now, they never explicitly said it was definitely going to happen, and at no point was I ever promised that. But they did open the door, and they did make me think it was possible, and therefore, I ran with it a bit. Now, it's on my shoulders to say, oh, that's not where we're going. Sorry, I made a mistake and turned back. I don't think that's a darkness I brought entirely with me. I think they did shine a light on that possibility at the start themselves. Well, I think the MCU was once better connected than it is now. Phase one, two, and three, Mm. you can see the pieces moving in a particular direction. And then as the thing spirals out further from that, it just becomes impossible because of the way that they've chosen to execute it. So you've got Kevin Feige that's overseeing everything, but then you get things that forget about plot points that came up in previous things or ignore them or push them aside or Mm. destroy them entirely or whatever else. And now they've settled on the don't watch everything if you don't want to, as a mantra. They never once said, you should watch everything. That was something that fans created surrounding it. You can watch any film in the MCU up to a point and be able to follow it, even the Avengers. The Avengers gives you all the information you need in order to enjoy the Avengers. Well, I agree. I'm one of those fans that did get a bit carried away with that, and it was something I did have to learn about this. It does seem weird reflecting on it, though, when a corporation says, by the way, we don't need to make money out of all of our films from you. We're okay with just making some money. I've never known a corporation be okay with making some money when making all the money is good. On reflection, it does seem a little weird. It's a difficult one, though, because it's the idea of, okay, we know this thing makes money, so we're just going to make this. But then you have different genres at play within the franchise. You've got the sci-fi of Guardians. You've got the fantasy-ishness of Thor. You have the spy-ishness of Captain America and its adjacent stuff and so on. So it's the idea of, well, not everybody's going to like a spy film, so we can't expect everybody to just engage with the Captain America stuff. Not everyone's going to be into comedy sci-fi, so we can't expect everybody to engage with Guardians, and so on and so on. But I would have thought myself as being part of an audience that would have enjoyed different genres, actually. Yeah, but but not everybody will. But I never counted myself as definitely being out because if a superhero dares to go in to spy i'll never like it all i'm saying is i think the door was definitely open for a through line whereby we would have seen something develop and been invited to enjoy 
different genres. And that could have been a real big deal. Yeah, but the recognition of you're making different things under different headlines in terms of genre. I don't think they've strayed too far away from formula entirely. So I think that everything has been relatively baseline accessible, sometimes to the detriment of the thing you're watching, as in, well, this isn't different enough, so it's therefore boring. But I think there should be, and maybe there is some kind of recognition that, you know what, we're going to make stuff that not everybody that has watched our previous stuff is going to like. And we just have to be okay with that if we're going to keep making this stuff. Otherwise, we're just going to make the same film over and over again, which will, in the long run, lose us money because people get sick of it. Yeah. Well, they weren't too worried about that when they started bringing us up to a film every fortnight. No. I guess they got to the point where they were invincible in some ways, as in every film, or almost every film, was cracking a billion at a point, whereas that's not the case anymore. In fact, this film hasn't performed all that well by comparison to their previous stuff, but... I think that's true of the box office receipts across the board anyway. I don't think that's a problem with Marvel. You can't say everyone's sick of Marvel films because they're not making as much money as they used to. Just that people don't have the money to go to the cinema anymore in the ways that they were before. And there's a million blockbusters out every month. So it's a much more crowded landscape than it was. So I think the thing you were hitting on there was the idea that you recognise the value in what you've seen here, but you also feel like it might not have entirely been for you. And I think that's a a valid reaction to have to something. But also, you managed to get something out of this anyway because the rocket stuff worked so well for it. Yeah, it was definitely an in-the-middle film for me, I would say that. Yeah, and the thing is, I got to the cinema and I've seen so many films that I come out of them thinking, that was all right, killed a couple of hours, it didn't bore me to tears or whatever. Sometimes good enough is good enough, I guess. I probably would have enjoyed it more if I hadn't had the baggage coming out of Black Widow and Multiverse of Madness, actually. We'll never know, I suppose. No. I mean, it was light years better than Quantumania, and that way can be fairly consistent. I'm all right with that. Yeah, the rocket stuff easily got it farther than that. I mean, I would argue that this film is about Rocket, and it's about his backstory, and... The stuff surrounding it, while everybody gets an arc of some sort, everything is in support of that, as in the plot kicks off because he's attacked and they want to save him. So it's a really simple plot, and it's probably the lowest stakes we've seen in quite some time, actually. But that doesn't make it bad, because the stakes feel significant to the people experiencing them. We talk about this problem of escalation that comes in these films all the time. Every film's the universe is about to end, because it has to be, because you can't get any bigger than what you've done before, so... You just stay on that plateau, really. But in this, in terms of widespread stakes, they dialed it right back. I would have agreed with that if they'd have kept it at the rocket level. But because they brought in the fate of nowhere itself, because that was assaulted, and then it almost collided with the evil base of the corporation, I can't quite remember. And then they also said that whole planets will be destroyed by this villain. And he does actually wipe out one planet, even though you only see one city. And then you've got the fate of the new species that is created. The stakes rapidly get back up to planet scale. Although I will admit, it starts out by rocket. But by comparison, they're far lower than we've seen before. Oh, the entire multiverse, yeah, I admit, <laughs> relative to that. Relative to me as a speck in the cosmos, it's still pretty big there. Yeah, the destruction of the planet, that's tragic because you see that there's life on that planet and they're all gone now. Mm. And nowhere being threatened, that's just one place. It's a really big place, but it's one place. It just happens to be where all our characters are. So yeah. it feels like this threat is against them because 
they're all there. It starts out with something very personal, though. I won't deny that. And that is a good thing. And when I was watching that early on, I was really hopeful because of it, because I do prefer the more personal stuff. We've said that many times. And it never loses that personal angle as well. It's always there with Rocket when he makes the choice not to kill the high evolutionary because he doesn't have to. The idea that he's actually let go of what he did to him. And he's able to do that because he has people. There are people that can make him better and that can support him. And that's really punctuated nicely when he attacks the high evolutionary and then all the other guardians come in and wail on him as well. The idea that you're alone, he isn't. Yeah, I do get that. I do quite like the internet meme, though. I I don't know how true it is. You'd have to remember the film better for me. The meme is the trope plot line of, at the end, hero doesn't kill villain in order to show hero is better than villain. So you've got that basic plot line. And then the meme added onto that trope is, but on the way to the villain, the hero slaughters a million people to get (laughs) Hang on a minute. You killed the people whose job it was to turn up and feed the guard dogs. He had to go. He was awful. But the super villain in charge of it all, nope, you're leaving him alive. He'll go on and do some pretty hideous things in the future. There's some clips, out footage and whatever, showing Drax rescuing the high evolutionary. So they do show that they do want him to still be alive. He doesn't die. Is that meme true here? Do they ever just slaughter loads of other people? Or are they actually quite nice about it and they don't kill anybody? Rocket doesn't. Doesn't know. Oh, he's unconscious. The one person I can think of who Peter kills is the guy that has the gizmo on his brain with the oh, passcode yeah. in it or whatever it is. He kills him and then he cuts the thing off his head. So that's actually murder. And that guy is just kind of a scared mook. He'd have probably given yeah. it to you with a bit of cajoling. The reason I bring this up again is potentially just because of midlife crisis being the age I'm in. I am searching for meaning and purpose in lots of things. And story is no different to that i'm searching for meaning in whatever i'm watching i do acknowledge that is a darkness i bring with me i'm I'm not going to be into something frivolous for that reason but when i am seeing this then and i do see this trope's the wrong word it's a story what do you call it what can i call it so that i'm not calling it a trope so it's not sounding insulting but it's a known story arc for a character call it that it's an accepted story arc that probably goes back a long time but we won't call it a bad thing if you use it right it's good. When I see that, I think it's more powerful if the journey to that point is connected to it. And with Rocket, I can see that it is because the High Evolutionary dealt so much death around Rocket that him making a choice not to use the same weapons of death is clearly part of that story makes sense and i like it but i struggle to emotionally connect with it because the rest of the cast aren't in any way doing anything related and they're happy to murder and kill and everything and so when rocket is at the end and as you say everybody else is wailing on the higher evolution with him that means that his journey is connected with theirs because they have done that they have joined in on the fight So everybody's journey has led to this end point. So it's now connected. So one of them has said, I'm going to let you live for these very important moral reasons. All the other ones in the crew, it's just Saturday and we're not killing anybody on Saturday. Oh, no, that's fair enough. Yeah, I forgot to look it up on the calendar. Fair enough. I'm sorry, I missed that. But it doesn't mean anything to them. So in order to get any real emotion out of that 
final scene, I think I would have preferred to have seen the rest of the Guardians simply blocking the exits. High Evolutionary tries to run through the front door, Peter Quill. He tries to run through the secret side door. Guess what? Group found it. He tries to go down the, the service elevator, Drax, and he is forced back into the room, and he is forced to go one-on-one with Rocket alone. And then Rocket makes that choice. And it becomes Rocket's story again. And I know that means that you don't have your group ending, but everybody else has got to, quote, be really cool leading up to that. So I think the ending would have been better if they'd have just let him do it by himself. Yeah, maybe. In terms of the lethal force thing, that's something that comes up as a debate all the time in comic book superhero stuff. The idea of should Batman kill the Joker or whatever. It's an ongoing debate that will probably never be resolved because everybody has a thought about it. And that's fine. I feel like it's not the place of production teams to necessarily answer those questions because it's more fun to debate them. Some of the worst things that have happened in recent years is answering decades-old questions that we really didn't need the answer to because we enjoyed talking about them. The space jockey and alien, what's the deal with that? We don't need Prometheus to tell us that. We have fun talking about it. We don't want to know. We want to keep talking about it. That's the beauty of it. Why do the Klingons not have ridges in the 23rd century in the original series of Star Trek? I didn't need Enterprise to answer that question for me because it was more fun debating it. Mm. And Enterprise's answer was crap because the answer will never live up to those expectations. So the lethal force debate, that rage on because everybody has a thought about it. And one way you could look at it is certainly in the climax of this film where they're being attacked and things, that's a kill or be killed situation. So... You could argue that they have no choice but to kill the high evolutionaries guards because they'll kill them if they don't. So you can see an, an argument there. You have that one take or fake one take corridor battle where they're all just wailing on the high evolutionaries creations. Mm. And this is a really well put together action sequence because it gives you that teamwork angle and it shows that everybody has a unique style that they bring to that teamwork as well so that's that's great so i'm okay with the fact that yes these people are attacking us with lethal force so we have to respond with the same or we will die and then the high evolutionary fight isn't the same situation because they don't have to kill him he's beaten no it's more what you said before about the guy that peter just has to get the headpiece off that's the stuff a final fight when everybody's under high stress no i'm all right with that it's more the lead up to it the rest of the film that's the thing i'm thinking of but anyway that's just a meme that's another conceit if you can't get past that then you really shouldn't be watching so i did label it a meme jokingly on purpose i think i'm more invested in the final fight resolution one-on-one argument rocket against the high evolutionary that's the one i'm less joking more serious about I did have an issue with Peter Quill killing that guy, actually, because he didn't have to. And I got the sense that it wasn't really the guy's fault that he had that passcode. He just happened to have it. Like I say, if he'd been put under any stress, he would have given it up. If Peter had pointed a gun at his head and said, give me the passcode, he'd have been like, okay, no problem. Here it is. And that would have been the end of it. So I thought that was harsh. I think that's my problem when somebody brings a theme to a film. If you spend too long trying to find the funny and trying to just force the plot to work for what you need in the moment, I do think you can undermine the power of your ending. And if we had had a moral team, a team of real old-fashioned heroes, fine, they do have to use lethal force when they're under threat, but if they don't ever do that when they don't have to, they can lead that moral charge. Then when it comes to the 
inevitable talking point where they have to debate with the villain, having the moral high ground is almost necessary to make that discussion meaningful. And it's certainly necessary, I think, in order to make that final choice powerful when they choose not to kill him. Because why doesn't Peter kill the high evolution at the end? It's not quite as silly as I made it out by It's Saturday and we don't. I get that. That was me trying to be funny. It is more along the lines of because the plot would be affected by that. But if you just take all that stuff away, if you take a little bit of care throughout, because as you say, I don't believe that he needed to kill that guy. They could have changed that part of the plot. And if you could change that part of the plot to make your ending more powerful, is that not always just a good thing? You could argue that Peter was at that point really driven to help Rocket because he blamed himself for Rocket being injured in the first place. So you could argue that was an irrational decision he made at that point. You could. That doesn't mash up with something said earlier in the film because when Rocket's injured, Peter's like, right, we're going to go and we're going to infiltrate this corporation. We're going to get that passcode. And Drax says, and kill anybody that stands in our way. And yeah, Peter exactly. says, no, we're not going to do that. Kill some people. Still no. Kill one stupid guy that nobody likes. <laughs> no, no, we're not doing that. And then he's the one to deliver a lethal blow later that he arguably doesn't have to. That's the thing. If you're going to put a theme in and really get me as the audience to bond with it, then you've got to stick with it and you've got to make it a point of your film. But the jokes or the plots are given priority. The idea of Drax being this almost wild animal when it comes to his application of lethal force that has to be reined in by the people around him, that's an interesting idea. And I think that would have fit his character as well because he's quite singular in his approach as in the way to get this accomplished is I kill this guy and that's the quickest way to do it. So it's the constant need to rein him in. I I think that would have worked. They would have had to have not used him as the comedy character though because... To do that and make it meaningful as you have it, he just has to be the person who honestly believes that this is the best solution. It's the best way forwards. Seriously believe it, because for him, it's the right thing to do. Because if you spend time, for example, dithering, that person might do some harm, and you could have stopped that harm. And they have to have this believable philosophical perspective on that. Sorry, Quill, you're not going to convince me that doing it your way is better because all those people you leave alive go on to do evil things. So no, I'm putting them down. But that's not a joke. That's not funny. So the Drax that you've just suggested, I agree, sounds really interesting. Not possible in this film at all. Potentially a shame, though. And outside of him saying, I want to kill someone or kill everyone, it doesn't come up again. It's a joke. Yeah, it's a gag. Yeah, and Peter killing that guy, it's something that happens in the midst of other things that are happening, so nobody draws any attention to it. It's me. I just found it a bit objectionable when I watched it at the time, so I was thinking, hmm, that's a bit awful, because they haven't set up this guy that he's killed as being horrible. In fact, he just looks like he's a snivelling sidekick. Yep. And historically, considering Guardians borrow so much from 80s storytelling anyway in terms of its setup and, and style, snivelling sidekicks are always the ones that will give you exactly what you want as soon as they're challenged, because they're powerless. Well, arguably they could have done it by changing the characters round, but again, that would revolve a rewrite, so they couldn't possibly do it. But if you want Gamora to be a Ravager, she is the one to do that. She is prepared to make the sacrifice. You've just told me that you value Rocket. Do you value this guy? We don't value him. Gamora just shoots him. At that point, Peter goes, but that doesn't mean I want him dead. You can still have the person being killed by a different character 
and it fits the emotional theme that you've set up. But I do believe that they don't stick to those themes because it's not funny. Not consistently, certainly, yeah. I think the thematic through lines in this work fairly well for the most part, but there are some blips in there. I won't disagree there. One thing I did like about Rocket's victory over the High Evolutionary, though, was that it was his imagination that allowed him to win. The whole idea of the High Evolutionary can't anticipate that his creations will have imagination. He hates the fact that they don't, or maybe hates the fact that they do, actually. But the idea that Rocket uses his intelligence and his ability to innovate to defeat him by having the technological counter to his powers. Okay, yeah, fair enough. I don't know that I'm big on that trope myself. The idea that he couldn't just have learned and in through his compassion, he was able to learn more over the years than the high evolutionary who was stuck in his ways. The idea that you have to raise art above science in all of these things, I think, is just not necessary. I see it quite a lot. At the end of the day, the human beats the robot because the human has a soul. Okay, that's quite religious of you, actually. I won because I have love and you only have hate. It works in a child story for me when they go that far. In this film, they didn't go that far. But you know what I mean? When they really push it that far, it's something for a kid's story. Here, yeah, they didn't push it that far, but it's in that vein. I'm not against it. But equally, I didn't think, that's amazing. For me, it was like, yeah, it's fine. It was in the middle. It was good. Not averse to it, but I guess it didn't hit me as well as it did you. It didn't necessarily stand out as clearly as it might have otherwise, because we always see Rocket innovating tech in order to solve problems. And it just so happened that his ability to do that here was a direct counter to the way the high evolutionary operates. Yeah, and I'd be happy for one of them just to be cleverer than the other. That's ultimately what it was, I think. Well, yeah, so he's just better than you. And then just rubs his ego out the wrong way. Yeah, it's your inability to grow and imagine things that's your greatest flaw, and that's why I beat you, kind of thing. I think the reason I'm saying it's not awesome for me is because if you're going to be a scientist of that level, of the high evolutionary is, then you will be creative, you will have some of that skill, you will be imaginative, because if you can't break out of your norm, then you will not be able to be a genius at science. And any famous scientist that you see interviewed will give you a variation on that. They'll say there was some creativity in in their work at some point. So when they reduce it down to, he's just robotic, I am an artist, it's too simplistic for me, because As I said, the high evolutionary would have been an artist. He would have been creative because he just couldn't have gotten to where he was without it. So rather than make it black and white, I'm creative, you're not. I'm thinking, well, that that doesn't make sense based on the science that I know. Couldn't you have just said, no, somehow I'm just better at this than you are. It's not that you've got nothing and I've got everything. I'm just better in some way. But for a simple plot, I guess it couldn't. It needs to be an easy message that they can say in two lines at the end. But if I'm asked to just consider those two lines, I find them incredibly unbelievable based on what I've been given. So I think I did need more nuance there to really enjoy it. I'm not against the idea, but I needed it to be cleverer to really enjoy it. Well, that's the interesting thing about the high evolutionary, actually. It brings us naturally on to 
my thoughts about what the villain of this piece represents. I said at the time that I saw him as being a bit of a jab at Disney from James Gunn's part, and you could see it as arrogant that the person writing the film is attacking the corporate structure that he is actually a part of, but that's what artists do, I guess. Anti-establishment type rhetoric is quite common in everything. We hate the thing we're a part of kind of thing and I don't think it's as strong as I hate this thing that I'm a part of but I do certainly think it's in there in terms of the creativity angle I agree that maybe the high evolutionary was at one point creative and still is but is also very limited because he's only thinking along particular lines he only wants to achieve his vision of what this utopia I suppose is going to be and he can't see outside of that and that's why he can't achieve it because he doesn't recognize that once he creates it, he sort of loses control of it. So it's the idea of, it seems like there's a fairly simple solution to his evolution, whatever it is, the vat that he puts, the glass case he puts animals in and evolves them. He couldn't see the simple solution that he was missing because it was tunnel vision, largely. And I do think there's a strong argument for the high evolutionary being Disney, the idea that he sees Rocket as product and nothing else. And the person behind that product or within that product isn't important because it's all proprietary. And you could see that as the way that Disney approach these things. They just want to churn out, or any corporation really, they just want to churn out more and more and more, consume more. Netflix create TV show after TV show that aren't designed to actually be that good. As long as you're still watching, just consume content, consume content. You've talked about that in previous projects with the marvel stuff as in there seems to be a reluctance to actually push things forward or resolve things or change things because you need things to be in that static bubble so that people can keep engaging with it in the way that they think they want to but people end up getting bored of the fact that things aren't changing or i mean how often do you see the criticism of these marvel films are all the same and i don't think it's as simple as that i think there is some truth to the idea that there is a lot of repetition between them and they're maybe not as distinct as they could be for that reason, because they are trying to force them into this template. And I think that's ultimately what the high evolutionary represents. I don't know if you saw that or can see that line of thought at all. I can see the line of thought from that phrase, I beat you because I'm creative, because you're saying that he's accusing the corporation or rather the corporation's boss. So he's attacking the head of Disney, who I suppose could represent Disney as a whole of not being creative enough. So I can see it from that sentence. I don't think I can see it from the character because I can't equate what the high evolutionary is trying to achieve with what Disney is trying to achieve because the high evolutionary isn't in it for money. He's not trying to sell the corporation. He isn't producing product. The high evolutionary is treating them like their product, so I can see that as an analogy. But his goals are not aligned with what I see Disney's goals are. So I don't see as him as representing Disney. They're too different. But when you bring it towards that particular sentence, I am better because I am creative, you will fail because you are not creative. If you take that in the abstract, I can see that as being a jibe at Disney. Yes. I don't know. Maybe you would do that. Maybe you would stick in just a quick barb, just as a sneaky little thing, just because you thought somebody would get it. Maybe. I'm not saying it's a one-to-one comparison or it's not what the film is about as such. Generously, you could say it's anti-corporate maybe rather than anti-Disney specifically, but Disney are also a monolithic corporation that 
get a lot of attention for this sort of stuff so it's impossible not to arrive at that line of thought but there's things like he wants to exploit Rocket's imagination he wants Rocket back because he's the only one of his creations who ever managed to imagine something beyond what they were created to do and he wants to understand how that happened exploit it and then take credit for it which you could see as James Gunn's Guardian script that they were going to make without him and Gunn has said in interviews that Rocket is him when he's writing these films he considers Rocket his, not quite Avatar, but, you know, the analogue. All writers put themselves into their work in some way or another. So James Gunn seems to think that he's doing that through Rocket in all of these films, but particularly in this one. So I guess when you see the background conflicts that led to this point, it's the idea of Rocket's imagination that the high evolutionary wants to make use of could be that script that was going to be used without him. I think if you'd have said to me, do you think that because Rocket is James Gunn, could I see that the high evolutionary is representative specifically of Kevin Feige, or was it Bob Iger as the head of Disney? Is he still the head of Disney? I'm not even sure. There was a change recently. I think it is Iger. I think it is. So if you'd have said that Gunn is Rocket, high evolutionary represents either Feige or Iger, I would say... I can see that by trying to bring it out further to all of Disney and making it less personal. No, I struggle because Disney and is it Orgo Cork, Orgo Cork, I can't remember. They're not close enough. And the high evolutionary's goals aren't anything like Disney's goals. So I can't see it with Disney. But if you'd said it's a personal jibe at an individual who tried to curb James Gunn's creativity specifically, yes, I could see that. I could. Yeah. And like I say, the comparison doesn't have to be one-to-one. That's the whole thing about reading into these things. You mentioned in the Picard podcast about tearing apart every line of a Wilfred Owen poem because every line must have that exact meaning that you can interpret from it. It's a reading of the film. I'm not going to say it's exactly what it was getting at, but it just seemed to stand out as a notion. I think if he was trying to poke something at the operation of Disney as a corporation, he would have needed to have changed the corporation in the film to make a connection at all. There isn't really a connection that I can see otherwise. I saw someone extend the the idea to Counter-Earth is a bit like Epcot, which is the community that Walt Disney wanted to build, this idyllic community that you wanted to build that was perhaps not possible. Okay, I didn't know anything about that, but yeah, that adds a connection. I don't really know much about Epcot either, and I'm not going to credit myself with coming up with it, because I didn't know what Epcot really was. I'd heard of it, but I didn't know what it was until it was laid out. So you can see that, and it's in there where, look at this world you've created, it's a mess. There's people dealing drugs on the streets and whatever else, and you'll think, yeah, I did make a mess of this, didn't I? I'll just blow up and start again. It's the lack of compassion for these creations, I suppose, and seeing them as just product that can be swept away and rebooted. Well, maybe maybe I can see the broken world as being an image that Disney was trying to create by presenting this for real perfection but the thing about that is that's old disney new disney is much more woke than that so if they were trying to use that as a parallel to disney they're using it about a disney that's already dead so it's too late to use that they would have needed a much more woke disney and it's possible that if james gunn was driving at this and the whole concept of death of the author means that it doesn't matter if he did or not because we have taking this reading from the film and there's enough evidence to support that as a valid reading so it doesn't 
really matter if James Gunn thought of it or not. But if he was trying to attack the corporation whose money he's spending to make this thing, maybe he would try and keep it a bit more loose and abstract. It's so that the people that he's making fun of don't notice that he's making fun of them, perhaps. Maybe a little private joke for himself. Yeah, could be. I don't know. I'm not swung by the argument, but I'm open to a possibility. But this film does seem to reject the concept of franchises being always stuck in this bubble. I've seen people talk online about the idea that in Marvel or Star Wars or name any other ongoing franchise that has no built-in endpoint, we're always in the middle of the story, which means that we never get an ending. So it's always just going on and on and on. And a lot of people have criticised Marvel since Endgame as being a bit formless and aimless because Endgame felt like an ending and somehow it's still going on. I can see that argument. I don't necessarily agree with it. I feel like Endgame is a distinct chapter ending where everything has to change afterwards. I don't think it necessarily has to stop afterwards. And I would rather it didn't because I like comic book stuff. So I'd I'd hate it if they just stopped making it, even if I don't enjoy all of it. But this film does very definitively bring these characters to a conclusion. Not the sort of conclusion where they're dead and we can never see them again, but it brings them to a conclusion where it feels like James Gunn's done with them. The creative force behind these films is done with them and he's put them in a place where people can pick them up and do whatever they like. But they've all ended up somewhere. It's not at the end of the film, it's like, well, we're off to another adventure as the Guardians of the Galaxy. The Guardians of the Galaxy concept is now changed irrevocably. I think if he tried to put it down so that nobody else could break his toy, that would annoy me. I'm not saying it happened, but if he did, I don't like that for reasons we've already covered about. Everyone's still on the board. No, but his toy is the ship with the people in it. They can't ever affect that team because that team is gone. That's the toy he's putting down. I'm not saying it was, but if he did, no, I don't like that. If he's saying something as a comment on the failings of the MCU, I would say I don't think I like that either because of the argument of people living in glass houses. Well, maybe rather than that, it's let he who without sin cast the first stone. If you're going to say, well, you guys made all these mistakes. Well, I would say to him, do you think you didn't make any mistakes either? You just blamed them or said they've got a certain arrogance with the way they've set things up. I have just argued on this podcast, I think you've got your own arrogance, that you think your story is better than what the previous production people gave to you. Maybe he doesn't see it that way. I don't know. This is all so up in the air of possibility, but I'm not into the idea of somebody making a comment about somebody else's arrogance if I think they've been arrogant themselves. I think it's a very risky thing to do. So if he just really felt that things should have endings, I think it makes the story better I'm going to have an ending. Well, that's somebody trying to do something positive because they're actually trying to give you a good story. If it's there, I'm on board. That's great. Lead by example. That's what I've said. I think lots of previous socio-political MCU offerings should have done. If you don't like something, show us what's good. So I, I hope it's the latter. I hope he just thought stories are powerful when they have endings. I'd like to show a good story. I'd like mine to be good. Therefore, I know I need to have an ending. I'd be fully on board with that. That's positive. That's helpful. That's a good director. It's a good storyteller. I don't think it's as malicious an attack on the whole concept of the MCU as I perhaps made it out to be, but I'm certainly bringing in the whole idea of in a lot of franchises, nothing ends or it doesn't feel like anything ends because we're just on to the next thing, on to the next thing. What's this character going to do next? Where are they going to show up next? What are this group of people going to do next? I suppose the episodic nature of what the MCU was doing 
was the idea that things will happen and we'll reset them and then we can do the same thing again next time we see them. You could argue that the Avengers films were kind of doing that. You talked about Age of Ultron as being, this is just Thursday for us. It did feel a bit weirdly like that, actually. Do you know, when I've looked back at the plot, it seems like such a natural follow-on for Tony's character on paper. I think we're going to need to watch Age of Ultron again, actually, in case I change my mind. We'll need to do a retrospective podcast about it at some point. Maybe. Just to discuss the finer points of it. I think in Age of Ultron, Tony's certainly motivated by getting rid of the Avengers, as in creating a world where they're not needed anymore. That's the whole notion of actually creating an ending. Tony Stark wants to create an ending. Yeah. And Ultron is the... His whole purpose is to create that ending. Obviously, the interpretation is very radical, as in, if I wipe out humanity, there'll be no more Avengers needed, because there'll be nothing to threaten, and nobody to threaten. That seems fine from a analytical robot perspective, I suppose. You can arrive at that conclusion. Terminator and all that stuff, it's the same thing. It's a standard AI fear angle, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And one that we're possibly living in now, but mm-hmm. that's another story. So the concept is that Tony Stark wants to create a world where the Avengers aren't needed, but Disney doesn't want to create a world where the Avengers aren't needed. So you have to end the film where the world still needs the Avengers. Otherwise, we have no sequel. We have no franchise. We have no continuity to maintain. And there's examples of that throughout the idea of we're resetting these people even a spider-man no way home he gets reset to the point where he is out in his own being spider-man again he doesn't really progress as such if anything he regresses because he loses everything and has nobody to support him at that point it's comics as well in comics they're constantly resetting everybody back to the factory state in order for the next writer to pick them up and do something with them but I also feel like this film has a definitive end point where it wouldn't make sense for the Guardians of the Galaxy to work together in this way again. And I kind of appreciated that because I don't feel like we're getting that enough. Yeah, cool. Okay, if he wants to create an ending because he thinks it's good storytelling, fine. Yeah, so you can see all these characters again in future stuff made by different people in different configurations, assuming the actors want to do it. Well, it sounds like a lot of them are kind of done with it as well. Yeah. Zoe Saldana said she's done with Gamora. I think Karen Gillan said about the same for Nebula. Dave Batista, he's done. So we probably won't see these people again. The end of the film does say we'll see Star Lord again in what function we don't know. But anybody could come back, really. And then you've got the potential for Rocket's Guardians team to do stuff. Yes. So that's a Guardians of the Galaxy. And you can remix that concept until the cows come home, really. You can create so many different permutations of a Guardians team. Because it's a bit like the Avengers. It's just a group of people that do this thing. In terms of a brand, it doesn't matter who those people are necessarily. So that's why if we ever get the Avengers back, it might be a completely different configuration of people than we're used to. Well, there's a discussion all by itself because they're just recreating the Avengers with different characters. So it'll be less of a shock to us because we'll still get to see the Avengers we know, just newer and better. Or they'll run a truckload of money up to Robert Downey Jr.'s house and say, come back for one last Avengers film. Oh, God, no. And he might. Well, maybe he will. That's the problem the multiverse gives you, actually. It is. The idea that you can render any developments meaningless because you just bring back the same guy but slightly different. Yep. But yeah, endings. It's good to actually have an ending, I think. And I think the ending that they gave us was pretty good in terms of separating off everybody into their own little silos. Do I want to see Rocket's Guardians, though? I don't know, actually. That might be an interesting group of people. Would you like to see that group of Guardians that he does at the end of the film? I don't know enough about them. And I guess it would be dependent on who is in charge of it, because if it was another film like Guardians 
to or the Suicide Squad. Essentially, if they copied James Gunn, then no, not interested. I'm not going to get anything out of that. I didn't like those. If they took a different angle, possibly, but I don't know enough about them. I guess it would be one of those ones where you'd watch it and see. I got nothing out of Adam Warlock, but I could see it potentially could make something of it depending on who they put him in partnership with. Who do they give him someone to bounce off of? So at the moment, I guess no. But if some body really awesome took it over and offered me something different maybe i guess that's the danger with it isn't it if kevin feige or whoever decides that they want to make another guardians film and they just give it to someone and say copy james gunn and then it's transparently a inferior copy of his style then that will just be horrible of something i wasn't really enjoying in the first place and it's inferior to that then yeah no yeah you don't want that that group of characters potentially i thought adam warlock was fine he obviously wasn't meant to be a huge focus in the film and He's very different to what he is in the comics. I actually think they let the actor inform who the character is in some ways, because Will Poulter, and a lot of the things I've seen him in, he plays a bit of a doofus. So he's just a superpowered doofus. And they, they justified that by saying, yeah, you let him out of his cocoon a bit early. So I was wondering about this the other day, actually. I know that Superman and Spider-Man are characters that you feel very connected to, and you've got a key idea of what you think is good for them and what is bad so i did wonder on the challenge if you were as a fan of adam warlock as you are of superman and they did this to him do you think he would still think it was fine no if i was a huge adam warlock fan then those will exist Oh, yeah. Because there's, what's it, 7 billion people in the world now? Something like that? Pushing eight, probably. Mm. Every superhero will be someone's favourite superhero. It's just the way it is. So I might have had a problem with the execution of it, but then again, I've seen them change characters that I like in different things, and I've enjoyed the reinterpretation of them anyway. So would I have still... I guess it just depends on what I like for Adam Warlock. And even then, Adam Warlock isn't consistent anyway. He was set up in a particular way, and then different writers have interpreted him differently, and he's taken on different roles and different things. So I don't know that he's necessarily as consistent as, say, Superman or Spider-Man is. So maybe your huge Adam Warlock fans would find that, yeah, he's in line with that take on the character that i've read and i'm okay with it i don't know it will depend on the person potentially yes i think there is a strong possibility though that the adam warlock fans will have hated this character in this film maybe any adam warlock fans listening let us know okay i don't have a strong connection to the character i've read him in various comics and i've seen him done in different ways so he's never felt like a prominent character to me so i don't really have a strong basis for that so for me this is just another interpretation of that character and i thought it fit with the surrounding setup and the actor playing him can't deny that it might have fitted the actor but i don't know that it necessarily fit well with what was going on around it it was an angle in that he was somebody else who had an idea of family and he got a different one by the end of it but it was a bit throwaway and he didn't really get to do anything and he didn't really exist as anything more than the trope that he was asked to he was a side character so arguably he couldn't be more than that but i think that he was just a tertiary character that was used i don't think he fit anywhere i think he was just a tertiary character that was used for a purpose and because they changed him from what I've read on the internet, and I, I went looking because I was interested, is they changed him quite dramatically from that. I would think an Adam Warlock fan would be quite disappointed by this and would have preferred him to have been either making the villain 
or just use a henchman? Because I don't see why they couldn't have just had a henchman fulfill that role. I thought it was poorly used. I'm not going to disagree that he was part of a very busy collection of things as it was. And his purpose in this was to get the plot started to begin with. Yeah, he was an item in that sense. Yeah, he attacked Rocket and that's what kicked everything off. And then when the plot needed to get moving again, he showed up again to attack again. And then he is redeemed sort of somebody does something nice in front of him which means that he immediately became nice so he was what he needed to be you can always argue that with different characters and i think you've argued in favor of the reinterpretation of characters on more than one occasion as well the idea of this isn't anything like the original conception of this character does it have to be we've had that discussion many times so i guess the question can be asked of adam warlock as well did it have to be Adam Warlock, or is it okay to reinterpret him for the purposes of the story that you're telling? I would say that when I've argued about the reinterpretation of a character, and let's take an example of this because it's just easier. So like Robin Hood. Robin Hood has been made very different throughout the ages based on what the people at the time needed him to be. When you go back to the original Robin Hood, there's a possibility he was just a bit of a dick. And later on, he's this amazing hero. So definitely they've completely changed it. My argument with that is, have you done it with a purpose for your story? And have you made that purpose deeply part of your theme? Because if you have, then I would say that is a valid investigation. If you have altered that character for a joke, or you've altered it for the purposes of crowbarring it into your plot because it couldn't fit anywhere else, I would say that's careless, thoughtless, and potentially insulting to your audience that you're trying to make money out of. And the Robin Hood example, I would say, is something I specifically bring up as being done with a purpose, and it doesn't offend me. The Adam Warlock, I would say, has been done in the latter. It's been done for a gag, just to crowbar it in. I didn't want this character. I just had to fit it in there so I'll get some fun out of it, and I find that somewhat insulting. Not as much as if I was an Adam Warlock fan, but not good from that perspective that I've been arguing before. I guess there's a larger conversation we should have at some point about the whole concept of adaptation and what's okay and what isn't from certain points of view in terms of how you adapt characters from source material, because we have so many radical interpretations of things. Transformers is probably a great example, actually, that you'll resonate with. You could watch the Michael Bay films and you'll see Shockwave and you'll think, that isn't Shockwave, for example. That'll be harder for me because of my emotional connection to it. It's easier with Robin Hood and Adam Warlock. So there's certainly a podcast we can do on that. I would argue that Transformers for me and Superman and Spider-Man for you are ones that we will not be impartial enough to use. If you want to have this discussion, let's do it. But you'd probably be better off taking off those characters for that emotional reason. Not right now, because this is long enough. I think that's ultimately what it will come down to over whether you'll accept a radical reinterpretation of something or not. If you don't have that emotional connection, you'll be all right with it. Or even if you don't know what the original is, you'll be all right with it because you don't know. But if you do, then they turn it into something that's very different from what you expect from that, then you might not like it. I see your point, but I disagree because I was bothered by Adam Warlock and I don't really care about Adam Warlock as a character. I've not no connection to it. I was bothered by it from a storytelling perspective. But I would argue that if you're emotionally connected to a character, then you're going to find it much harder to accept. That's all. 
But you would have been bothered by any character in that role. So the fact that they're Adam Warlock isn't what you're bothered by as such. Is that right? It's not that it's Adam Warlock. It's that it's a treatment of a character with no respect. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not bothered what character it is. If they put Superman in that role and turned him into a flying baby, I would have been bothered because it's the disrespect to the character. Did you have any concept of who Adam Warlock was before you saw the film, I guess, is a question to ask? After the post-credit of whatever film it was, I did look him up. Okay. I thought, I wonder who this is. I wonder what they're going to make out of it. I'm only offended from an intellectual perspective. I'm not emotionally offended. I'm not losing sleep at night here. I'm thinking of the Adam Warlock fans, and I can empathize that I think their hero character was done any Adam Warlock fans listening, let us know. Did you hate this? Did you not? Let us know. That's an interesting one. I guess I didn't give him much thought. It was more drawn to the Will Poulter thing. And I was thinking, well, that's kind of what I expect from Will Poulter from what I've seen him in and other stuff. Yeah. So I guess that was fine. Cosmo, I quite liked Cosmo, just to throw that in there. The good dog, bad dog thing that carried through it. That was a gag I did enjoy. Yeah, it's quite amusing. Quite like it when you give the animals voice and they vocalize in ways which you expect the animal to behave. She doesn't like being called a bad dog because dogs don't like it when you're cross with them. Yes. It's a nice touch. I haven't really talked about Groot, but I don't think he does anything. I don't think he's really designed to do anything. No, not really. Weirdly, I think he is more in Guardians 1, though. I will say that. Not the same Groot, though. No, but the character space that is being fulfilled there is given to somebody who has more to do do as little as Groot can do he has more to do and maybe it's just because as we've said in many of these there's just too many characters too much for everybody to come out the interesting thing with Groot is actually because in Guardians 1 you get Groot and you get the setup with Rocket Rocket and Groot they're appearing they are inseparable and then after that they're spending so much time getting the new Groot to that point again because he's a baby in the second one he's a teenager in the Avengers movies that he's in then here he's back to you assume adulthood, but this is Groot's son, not Groot. Yeah. I think some people forget that, that the Groot we have here isn't the original one that we saw in the first film. They don't do loads to differentiate the character. They keep the same voice actor. So if they wanted to make that clear, then they'd have to draw more of a line there and give the characters more to do. I did like the touch where we as the audience could finally understand him at the end of the film. And James Gunn did say that. The whole point of that was that he's still saying, I am Groot, but we are understanding what he means now. Oh, right. Okay. It's not that he suddenly learned how to speak. The translation happened instead of another character having to tell us what he just said. It's a pleasant Easter egg. I didn't understand that from a film because they never made it clear who understood Groot for what purpose. You either did or you didn't, and it was part of the joke. So there was no real meaning behind it. It's a nice little Easter egg at the end to get from the director, but I wouldn't have got that from his film. And where Groot ends up, he's just supporting Rocket, so that's all we can really get from him, I suppose. Because you can only see three words. Obviously, you get little affectations, not leaving Rocket's bedside and all that stuff. That shows the loyalty and the connection they have. Sure. I wasn't against any of that, really. Oh, no. Covered mostly everything. Animal testing is something we didn't quite cover explicitly, but it's in there. It's a very clear anti-animal testing message in the rocket flashbacks. Yeah, they need you to know that this high evolutionary is evil. He's not misunderstood. He's not got a tragic backstory. He's nasty. Yeah, and the concept of heroism, we touched on it. I like that the climax was about we have to save everybody. We went through a point of getting a lot of that and then it sort of vanished by the wayside a bit and now I'm glad that they're maybe looping back to that, at least in this film. 
I mean, yes, it's another one of those ones where I might say on paper, that's good. I didn't really pick anything up on the film about that being exceptional. I didn't have any emotional connection to it. I didn't think, oh, I'm so glad they saved everybody. It just seemed like something they did because that's what they would do. So, yeah, I'm afraid it's another one. On paper, it sounds good, but I I wasn't moved by it. Okay, touched on the action sequences. I do want to call out the design of that organic matter base thing. I thought that was really cool, really grotesque in some ways, but it it looked really cool. Sure. For me, this is another one of those things, though, where it, it didn't have anything to it other than it was a funny idea and not everything has to have purpose and meaning because if you ladle it in that much then it's going to fight against itself but i can only really pick up on these things if i'm invested in the film if they're just trying to distract me with shiny baubles i just didn't care yeah it was an organic base okay cool i guess doesn't really mean anything to me didn't look impressive it looked a bit freaky when you saw the big hair growing and what have you, but I don't know. I guess I'm not sure what I'm supposed to get out of it. I was a bit bored by that side of things because, I don't know, it just didn't connect. Fair enough. Aesthetically, I think this film was a massive step up from Quantumania. We talked about how the design work in there was also flat and boring, whereas here it was everywhere they went looked different and distinct, and I appreciated the effort that went into creating these different places they went to and just being bright and colourful and cgi that looks believable it's nice to see we shouldn't really be celebrating it in that way or as extensively because every film should be like this when they're spending that much money on it but the fact is that they're not so it's remarkable in that way i appreciate the pleasure that you get out of the individual places being distinct I would have noticed if they hadn't have been distinct. They might have seen it a bit dull. So I do get that. There is a big danger for me of form over function. That's the right way around, though. Making things look good just to make them look good. I'll always come back to Doctor Strange using a giant demon cat head to solve a problem in Multiverse of Madness because the production teams are on interview saying, we just needed to think of something that hadn't been done before. And I would have thrown the same question that you asked about Picard to them about that. So you created something new that hadn't been done before. Why is that by itself good? What's the context of him using that in the situation he was in to make it good? So, yeah, I agree that it's nice that the different places had different aesthetics, but there was quite a lot of in this film. If it looks cool, it is great. The rule of cool was all over this, even to the extent that the characters vocalize it did i look cool when i came through there it comes in two or three different times all the characters are very keen to make sure that they looked cool and that really grated with me because they're saying as long as it looks good it doesn't have to be good isn't that right what it looks like is more important than its meaning i know they didn't mean to take it that far but when i'm looking for meaning and i'm not seeing it And then a character actively comes out and says to me, no, no, meaning isn't important. It's just the fact that we look good. I was just really off-put by that. In terms of the aesthetic of some of these things, I do think it does tell you a lot about what they're looking at, though, because the organic base, I guess that's the high evolutionary, just creating something because he can. But the inside of it, it looks very sterile, the white corridors and so on. That's something that you associate with bland corporateness. Counter-Earth is stuck in the 50s 
which many see as this idyllic time when it wasn't really. Things like that. So to me, they're both different. To me, you've just hit the opposite sides of the same coin there, showing you counter-Earth in the 1950s to invoke a feeling of the amazingness of times gone by, the perfection of the false memory that has a purpose, that has meaning. Creating an organic spaceship because it looks cool, but doesn't invoke anything in you other than a bit of revulsion because it's skin, is the opposite. There's no meaning, there's no purpose. It doesn't tell you anything about what's going on. Now, as I said, I can't expect there to be meaning in everything, but I think I might say that there is value in theme. So I don't understand what the organic station told me about the high evolutionary. You've just proposed that it might be he created it because he could. Now, if somebody would have brought that into the plot, that he was that kind of absent-minded, nutty professor, just really going for it, pushing buttons because he's a bit of a child. Oh, I can make it blue. Yes, awesome. But that's not who he was. To me, he was dedicated, focused to a fault. He created things for a reason because he is aiming at this very definite endpoint that he wants and he can't get to. So I can't see this character frivolously creating anything. So I think the 50s thing was great, but the organic base, I think that was just because it looked cool. I don't get any value out of that at all. Yeah, possibly. And maybe there is an interpretation out there. I just couldn't quite get to it. But it's striking anyway, at the very least. Well, it was, but so was the demon cat head. <laughs> That's on the screen for like two seconds. It's one of those, what's that? Did I just see that? Okay. And a bit on here about music. The only thing that stood out to me about the music was that it seems to be from all over the map in terms of the eras, whereas the previous two films have been a bit more focused in one particular era of music. So the idea that they're taking things from all over the place is quite interesting. And thematically, that shows the idea of progression because they are moving through eras of music and they're not forgetting about the old stuff, but they're embracing the new stuff that ties in with what the film's doing in some ways. It does, but it's forcing it. We did the 70s, we did the 80s. Quick, rush to go through the 90s, 20s and 10s because this is about ending and we must get to the ending. That's pushing your theme too hard. I don't know that you really needed to bother with it. They could have gone into the 90s or maybe they could have just skipped all the way till a modern song and not worried about crowbarring stuff in like that. Yeah, and there's a word for this, but I can't remember what it is. The idea of where the soundtrack that you hear blasting out the speakers is what the character is actually listening to at the same time. They do that quite a lot where Peter will put in his headphones and you'll hear the tinny sound from the headphones and then it will expand out to fill the scene. There is a word for that. I wish I knew what it was, but... They did that quite a lot. I mean, music has always been part of the identity of these films, so good that it retains that and gets a few more things to add to people's Spotify playlists, I suppose. Some good choices in there, though. Some I hadn't heard of, but there were some good musical choices in there. Fair enough. My memory's not going to bring them up, I'm afraid. Is there anything we didn't discuss that you definitely want to discuss? I think I got everything in. I can't remember. There was a couple of times when we said we'd come back to this. The rule of cool was the one I wanted to get in definitely. We got there. If I can't think of anything else, then we must have covered it. I suppose comedy, you said that the comedy didn't really work for you. Was it comedy that did work for you? You did mention the good dog, bad dog transition. I'm afraid my memory isn't good enough. I did get a few chuckles out of it but i never got any laughs not like guardians one where i was actually laughing okay there wasn't a tremendous amount that i found super hilarious nothing that certainly stuck in the mind the emotional stuff stuck in my brain much more which for me makes it better i suppose because even if you do find something hilarious the humor will fade over time the more you watch it you'll find it less funny fair enough 
I've just thought of something. I feel I would be wrong of me not to bring in the plot force too many times into a podcast. So I will get a good mention in for it. There's quite a lot of exposition in this film whereby characters are explaining something they're about to do and do it or do something and then explain it. And that drives me up the wall because I'm not sure Marvel used to do this all the time, but it it's something that they now do a lot and it feels like they think we've become stupid. I'm objecting to it. The key thing that comes to mind that also had a lot of plot force in it, worst scene for this was where they're trying to get to that space station and they have to breach the three force fields. And they first of all say that it's impenetrable and they immediately say, except it's not impenetrable, <laughs> I will do it. And Peter goes downstairs and starts plugging with some lights and just presumably repolarizing various energy fields, and they just breach through these shields. It has no plot meaning at all, because nobody cares that they've breached the shields. When they get to the corporation, it's just not an issue at all. And the Ravagers are already there. And the Ravagers are already there. How the hell did they get in? So the plot force said, we needed a problem for them to deal with, but it's not too difficult, and also it can't get in the way of anybody but them. It was the worst instance of the plot force I've seen in a long time. Add to that, that on top of that, they had to do the defeat of the problem purely through exposition while they're also yelling at you. And it's one of the worst scenes I've seen in a Marvel film in a long time. Now, that doesn't make the film awful because the film isn't always that bad. But for just one moment, the film gets incredibly lazy. And I think that's a big shame, especially because rocket scenes were so awesome by comparison. Why on earth did this one scene fall so low? I've no idea. The one thing that stood out to me in that scene more than anything else was we need to get through these energy fields. And Peter says, well, I used to be a thief, remember? Everybody knows that. Yeah. This raw exposition for no value whatsoever. Infuriating. And that's when the granddad gets mentioned for the first time as well. Mantis says, remember that granddad you left behind who pushed you out of the hospital room or whatever? And he's like, yeah, and he's never going to go see me again, blah, blah. And it came, went on and on. And yeah, on. that's not relevant here. We just need reasons to yell at each other. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit bizarre. The scene where Peter just quickly summarised why Gamora isn't the same Gamora you saw in Guardians 2, just in case people only watch the Guardians films, that stood out. But that's arguably a necessity when you're making these things, trying to make them stand alone without people having seen the previous stuff. I would say there are things that fall into that category, but having a crush on somebody that doesn't have a crush on you does not need explaining to your audience. You can get that through normal dialogue. So no, that was weak. But if you're talking to the audience that has only seen Guardians 1 and 2, they might be wondering what the deal with Gamora is. Well, if that's your problem, then we have to bring up the fact that it's not the Gamora that should have been there. Let's go back to my discussion about Gamora. So I still think, no, it's still a problem. It's just a different problem. But it's one of those explanations you have to put in, or they feel like they have to put in because they're assuming that everybody isn't watching everything. No, they put it in because they didn't write it well enough. No, I'm going to stick by that on that one. That could have been written differently. They took a shortcut. They said it's okay for us to take this shortcut because we've got better plot to deal with rather than working it in. So, no, it's not a necessity. They just wanted the shortcut. Sure. Anything else? No, I've got that off my chest. I feel like I've done enough hating now. That's fine. (laughs) One thing to point out is Lila, the otter, is voiced by Linda Cardellini, who is Hawkeye's wife. 
Hang on, this is going to confuse me. Let's get this right. You're saying the actress plays both Hawkeye's wife and the voice of the author. Lila, yeah. Right, okay, that's fine. Because otherwise I was starting to get how meta is it that they went here. It's actually not the first MCU actor that's been in two things. Gemma Chan was in Captain Marvel before she was in Eternals as a different character. Michelle Yeoh was in Guardians 2 as a different character before she appeared in Shang-Chi. So now Linda Cardellini's voice numbers among the MCU actors to double up. I can say that this is not something that breaks consistency for me. I am not going to complain against it. I just thought I'd point it out. Okay, all right. I just thought you were trying to trigger me there. No, I'm not, not worried about that. Because you have the opening credits of the film that tell you everybody that's in it, and she's actually credited at the start of the film. Right. So is Michael Rosenbaum, actually. He's the crystal guy. Who is that? Michael Rosenbaum, who is Smallville's Lex Luthor. No, who's the crystal guy? He's one of the Ravagers. He's the one that's made out of crystal. Okay, I didn't know that at all, but then he was made out of crystal, so fair enough. He showed up at the start, well, towards the beginning, when the Guardians breached the barriers that were impenetrable, oh, yeah. but previously penetrated by the Ravagers before them. And he's the one that takes Gamora away at the end as well. I knew the crystal guy, but trying to figure out which actor that was, yeah, I was never going to get there. Unless you knew, you probably wouldn't know. Yeah. Another thing I noticed was there is a Ravager that uses Doctor Strange portals. Oh my God. So what you're telling me is Doctor Strange, in his own film, Multiverse of Madness, failed to use the portal sling ring to solve problems that he should have done because he had it. But in this film, there was somebody who randomly used a portaling device just all the time anyway. That is infuriatingly mad. Or that character knows how to use magic. Oh, the Sorcerer Supreme doesn't. Yeah, I forgot that. (laughs) It was how the Ravagers got aboard the Guardian ship was they came in through that guy's portals. Oh, just don't. No, delete that. Just get rid of that. That's that's just so much worse. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm going to count that as the only MCU connection. Fair enough. In that case, we can keep to the consistency of whenever they try to connect things back to the main MCU, it makes it worse. I'm all right with that, actually. And I'm okay with aliens in another galaxy being able to use magic. I'm okay with the fact that they can probably learn that. That does make sense. It's only infuriating because I watched Multiverse of Madness. If I hadn't have watched Multiverse of Madness and Black Widow, this would have been a vastly superior film. Need to get you one of those memory erasers from Men in Black. I do, actually, yeah. Or Mantis could make you forget that you've seen them. Yeah. Like she did with Drax. Absolutely. Made him forget his outburst. Yeah, do it. We'll have a word with Mantis, see what she says. Okay. She might make you fall in love with your laptop or something instead. Oh, well. Because she's a bit mean in that way. I seems so, yeah. So what are your wrap-up thoughts then? In summary, I enjoyed the Rocket film. But the other parts of the film, unfortunately, I I was a bit bored by it. I didn't connect with it at all. Partly that's because of the humour issue, that it's just not my style of humour. But partly it's because I've been hung up on MCU problems, like changing characters, lack of consistency. And in the worst cases, making Drax a caricature of himself to that character's real detriment. He, He was a little bit horrifying for me to watch. Going through this discussion... I will acknowledge that my problems with Gamora are not nearly as bad as as Doctor Strange and Black Widow. So I didn't really not enjoy the film because of it. But still, there was no real power, there's no real meaning in the other plot. And when you add in the plot force and other such issues, all I could really enjoy was the rocket part of the film. However, I really enjoyed the rocket part of the film. It was powerful, it was meaningful connected to the rest 
of his storyline. You're really pleased when he escapes in his final flashback. The only part of Rocket's story I would have changed would have been the ending because I would have had the Guardian stand back and had Rocket face off against the High Evolutionary by himself and make it a, a theme that runs throughout the film, preferably by linking in the other characters into his film, really leaning into it being Rocket's farewell rather than trying to cram in the other stuff about the family and the farewell to the Guardians. I hope James Gunn ended it because he just thought that endings make things better. And that's how we got what we got. It's an okay film. I would put it three stars in the middle of the pack. I'm still surprised that one of your friends came out and said one of the top five Marvel films of all time. That really blew me away. But equally, I wouldn't say it was awful either. So uh, yeah, I enjoyed my Rocket film. There we go. Maybe recency bias is the cause of that and his view will change with a bit of fridge logic. Maybe so. I don't know. But anyway, the fact that it made him think that at the time, I suppose, shows that it was doing something right for him. Well, absolutely. Yeah. We can ask him some other time. Has your ranking changed? Indeed. I don't know if we've mentioned it before, but Shukwudu Uwuji as the High Evolutionary was excellent. Certainly one of the better performed Marvel villains in quite some time. And he's not a huge name either. So the fact that they just got an actor and let him act was a good thing. He was in Peacemaker was where I last saw him. Another James Gunn thing. Oh, yeah, I enjoyed his performance. He was told to be evil, and he was evil. He had a bit more to him than that. Well, there was that moment where he seemed to be sitting with Rocket and just having a almost father-son conversation where he was teaching him things. Yeah, they had a good betrayal Yeah, in that point, certainly. He's one of the better villains, and I think it would have hit harder again if it had been supported more by a better theme and winding a few things in rather than doing so much. So it's one of those ones where I'd say actor great would have liked to have given him more in the script. It's almost the idea of he's only interested in the current thing. And then when the new thing comes along, the old thing is, bin it, we don't need it anymore. It's especially nefarious when it's life's that you're playing with there. Mm. You were never going to go to the new world. We're going to put you down. You were just a step on my journey of experiments to the perfection that I want. Don't need you anymore. The idea that Rocket was the thing he was most proud of at one moment that then changed very quickly, that makes him worse as a villain. Worse in a good way. Yeah. Not worse in a it's terrible writing or whatever. Sometimes it's good to just see a villain that you can just hate. I'm all for giving villains sympathetic backstories and things like that, but sometimes it's, nah, they're just bad people out there. Uh. It's good to have that balance when you're watching things, rather than every villain needs to have a sympathetic and relatable backstory. No, that's why he's just a scumbag. There's no redemption for him because it can never be done. Fine. Well, my wrap-up thoughts are, I enjoyed this film a lot. The humour, as I've said, didn't necessarily sit right with me, but I think it was doing so much else well that I was able to largely ignore that. It wasn't overpowering me with its comedic chops. It was giving me a lot in other ways through the emotional storytelling. Really liked it. It was a fitting conclusion for the majority of these characters. I have no doubt we'll see at least some of them again. But I'm happy with the story that was told over these three films, plus their interstitial appearances and other things. So, yeah, really good. It's difficult to see what will happen with Marvel from this point on, because we really don't know what direction it's heading. Quantumania was a particular low point, as we discussed before. And this film was never going to be a good barometer for superhero fatigue, as people keep calling it, because it was the James Gunn conclusion so it was never going to be an example of what we can expect from the franchise maybe as such i think the marvels will be a better litmus test for 
where Marvel might be going. That'll be an interesting one to see what the, the setup of that is like. But this, yeah, really good. I will happily watch it again and get more out of it, probably. I'll just say that as someone that has a pet cat, the animal stuff really was a real gut punch. And I think a lot of animal owners or animal lovers said the same thing. They weren't able to stomach it as easily as some others might have been able to. You don't have animals, but was it especially harrowing or was it just more harrowing than other stuff? It's difficult to comment because I found the rocket stuff meaningful, powerful and harrowing. And I found the rest of it unemotional. So I don't have anything to compare it to in this film. So yeah, it was really nasty. Yeah, fair enough. So that was it. That's our discussion of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. I'd like to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music. And if you like what you heard, please do hit subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. There will be a subscribe button on your feed. Just press it. And most of those places now have built-in rating systems that you can use to give us a rating. And just as a final test, I suppose. I don't know what I'm testing, but I'm going to test it. I was going to say, yeah, what are you testing? You are the high evolutionary, that's a bit mean. <laughs> How many stars would you prefer people give us? How many barriers would you prefer people penetrate in order to get their thoughts across to us. I think they should do as many as in proportion to how good of an argument we gave them. There we go. Fair enough. And those barriers are not impenetrable. You can get through five of them very easily. So I'll say that. And you could leave a comment as well. But if you want to discuss Guardians 3, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Marvel in general, or anything else, you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter under the blog or leave us a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. And as always, we hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod.